0: When Night Falls at Devil's Den. Episode 6 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast.
1: It's not a good day to be a bad guy.
2: Hello, and welcome everyone to the podcast. I am your host, Wayne, along with my lovely co-host and wife, Michelle. Hey there. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin, where we cover such topics as UFOs, aliens, conspiracy theories, paranormal encounters, ghosts, the Michigan Dog Band, Bigfoot, and all things paranormal and strange in and around Michigan. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Hello, everyone. A big thank you to everyone who is sharing the podcast with friends and family. It is incredible the responses we have received and continue to receive. Our Facebook group and audience continues to grow by leaps and bounds as people interested in the paranormal and UFO sightings in and around Michigan find the podcast.
0: Including some of my students who are now trying to find the podcast and asking me in class, is this your podcast?
2: Exactly. (laughs) We now have a public Facebook page for the podcast, and you can find us by searching for at M-I-U-F-O-S-P-E, and that will get you to our public Facebook page. Stop on by and give us a like and a follow for news and events that are related to the podcast. Also, if you have a story that's related to UFOs or the paranormal from around Michigan, we would love to talk to you. Can reach out at us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us an email and we will schedule to have you come on podcast and you get a chance to tell your story. We are continuing our search for anyone with information or was witness to the 1966 UFO flap in the Ann Arbor Dexter area. If you are someone or know someone who experienced this time in Michigan history, And we would love to have you come on the podcast and relate your experience for the audience. If you like the podcast, the content we cover, and are interested in supporting the podcast, you can now help by going to our Anchor public page and click the support button. This will give you three different levels of a monthly contribution you can make. It is not required, but any help is appreciated. A link will be provided in the show notes and now it's time for
0: what's in the news
2: yes what is in the news
0: former navy pilot
2: recalls seeing hundreds of ufos calls them security threat ryan graves tells 60 minutes the unidentified objects are a security threat
0: so the stories are now hitting 60 minutes
2: Uh, Yes, that was an amazing show that they did about uh, UFOs, and here they are in the news again as we get
0: closer to June 10th. I grew up in a household where 60 Minutes was a staple. Oh, yes, absolutely. So the fact that this story is now hitting 60 Minutes, it's like, okay.
2: Now everybody wants to listen.
0: Now I'm getting uh, approached even about did you see that episode on 60 minutes
2: Oh yes I our inbox is getting inundated with information about UFO sightings and yeah people are coming up to me I know me my all
0: coworkers are starting to approach me now did you watch that episode on 60 minutes <laughs>
2: Yeah what's going on with this stuff Well that's what we're trying to figure out <laughs> So it says here a former navy pilot And this is brought to us uh, by way of foxnews.com, though this article is pretty much circulating everywhere because of the 60 Minutes interview. It says, a former Navy pilot says he witnessed UFOs flying in restricted airspace off the coast of Virginia
0: nearly every day for two years, beginning in 2019. Okay, so we've heard of the sightings off the coast of California, but now off the coast of Virginia.
2: Yeah, and if you uh, watch the interview with David Fravor on the Joe Rogan show uh, many months ago, he does talk about his quote-unquote friend who said that he has seen them on the East Coast as well. And I take it this Lieutenant Graves is probably that friend he's talking about. It's got to be. Former Lieutenant Ryan Graves told 60 Minutes that the unidentified objects, like one seen in a Pentagon-confirmed Navy video near San Diego, are a security threat.
0: So it goes on to say the latest firsthand account comes a month ahead of a report by the National Intelligence Director and Secretary of Defense on unidentified aerial phenomena, a measure that was including in a COVID-19 relief bill passed in December. The article goes on to say, I am worried, frankly, you know, if these were tactical jets from another country that were hanging out up there, it would be a massive issue. Graves said, according to a clip of the 60 Minutes interview, but because it looks slightly different, we're not willing to actually look at the problem in the face. We're happy to just ignore the fact that these are out there watching us every day. Now, seamen who have seen the unidentified objects believe they could be a secret U.S. technology, enemy surveillance devices, or something entirely different, Graves told CBS. This is a difficult one to explain. You have rotation, you have high altitudes, you have propulsion, right? I don't know. I don't know what it is, frankly, the lieutenant told correspondent Bill Whitaker as he watched an unclassified video. He went on to say, I would say, you know, the highest probability is it's a threat observation program, Graves said, according to the report. A former defense official who spent years investigating unidentified aerial phenomena told the network program that the vehicles have technology vastly exceeding any human invention.
2: Imagine a technology that can do 600 to 700 G-forces that can fly 13,000 miles an hour. That? can evade radar, and can fly through air and water and possibly space. And, oh, by the way, has no obvious signs of propulsion, wings, no control surfaces, and yet can still defy the natural effects of Earth's gravity. That's precisely what we're seeing. And this was said by Luis Elizondo. This story first appeared in the New York Post. So Luis Elizondo was the former head of ATIP. So something else I wanted to add to this was that Tucker Carlson on Fox News had a reporter on from the Washington Examiner. His name was Tom Rogan. And they were talking about the spherical objects that were captured on camera off of a U.S. destroyer that hovered over the ocean you can see it fly into view. It's spherical in nature, it hovers over the ocean and then disappears into the water. And in the background, you can hear the crew members say splash, splash, like something crashed into the water. Now, conjecture, speculation has it that the U.S. Navy sent out a submarine to look for any kind of a wreckage and they couldn't find anything, as if it was a vehicle that might have crashed into the water looking for survivors, those kind of things, or any, any wreckage floating on the water that wasn't found. Now, apparently, in this report that's coming out in June, it's going to talk about how U.S. Navy submarines have data on submerged UFOs, or USOs, Unidentified Submerged Objects, moving at hundreds of knots underneath the water. And they have the data from the sonar contacts and things like that from submarines. And they they don't know what these things are. Now, the best place to hide a UFO is places where you can't see very easily into. And one of those places is definitely the ocean. So they could operate under there with no one ever
0: knowing that they're all, there. All day and all night.
2: Exactly. Because you can't just look deep into the ocean and look around. There's no light. There's no people around to see it. So it just kind of makes sense. And we know more about outer space than we do about the depths of our oceans. Because we just don't have the technology to get get down there and uh, understand what's going on.
0: Let's start off with
2: some shout outs. All right. So first of all, let's talk about Contact in the Desert 2021. This will be a virtual event held on June 25th through the 28th. If you're interested in Contact in the Desert, all you have to do is go over to contactinthedesert.com and you can find out more details. Now, even though this event is happening the 25th through the 28th, you do have a total of two weeks beyond that, those dates that you can listen and watch the virtual event as it took place
0: we also need to make sure that we give a shout out to our guys at the lost in the dark podcast hosted by burton and aaron this is a pretty cool podcast that builds itself as an attempt to capture incredible conversations between best friends as we explore all of our passions but especially music and the world of heavy metal so if you're into paranormal investigations and loud, heavy metal music, give them a listen. Strong language, but it's heavy metal in the paranormal. What else would you expect? And
2: what's going on with that show and us, Michelle?
0: Um, We are going to be guests on the show uh, in about a week.
2: That's correct. So we will be recording a show with them on their podcast And we'll make sure to direct you guys over so you can listen to the hilarity that will ensue if you are so inclined. But it'll be a good time. And last but not least, over to our friends at the Midnight Truck Stop hosted by Big T and Blue Knight. A very cool couple of guys with a great concept as they explore those strange and unexplained incidents. That so many of us have experienced while traveling along desolate highways. Give them a listen as they collect stories from all around the country from truckers and travelers alike. Well, Michelle, I think it's time for a break. What do you
0: think? I think it's time to hear from one of our sponsors.
3: Join me, George Norrie, for the Worldwide Contact in the Desert Virtual UFO Conference, June 25th to June 28th. Contact in the Desert is an epic weekend of adventure, jam packed with exciting explorations into UFOs, ancient civilizations, AI, crop circles, forbidden archaeology, disclosure, and the newest evidence of ongoing contact, sightings, and leading edge science. This amazing weekend delivers more than 130 presentations and special events, showcasing 67 speakers. From all over the world, with two extra weeks to view your favorite leading experts, including Avi Loeb with Clyde Lewis, Linda Moulton Howe, Paul Hellyer, John Lear, Russell Targ, David Childress, Doc Wallach, and more. With breaking articles in the New York Times and acknowledged naval sightings and, more importantly, the new release of classified documents on the day of the soft opening of Contact in the Desert, we are your source for inside information. Join us June 25th at contactinthedesert.com to get your tickets today. Make contact, contactinthedesert.com.
0: Coming up next, we have Mr. Terry Lovelace. So to let you know just a little bit about his background, um, he is a six-year veteran of the U.S. Air Force, serving on active duty from 1973 to 1979. He completed a bachelor's degree in psychology from Park University and a law degree from Western Michigan. His legal career began in private practice until his appointment as an assistant attorney general for the U.S. Territory of American Samoa. He also served as an assistant attorney general for the state of Vermont until his 2012 retirement. Stories have continued to unfold from Devil's Den State Park in northwest Arkansas during a remote camping trip in June of 1977. Both Mr. Lovelace and a friend on active duty at the time. What followed were 43-plus years of nightmares, phobias, and PTSD-like issues. In 2012, a routine leg x-ray discovered two anomalous objects in his leg. The x-rays are on his website at TerryLovelace.com. That event was the catalyst to write the books and speak publicly about his experiences. For fear of losing his job and the respect of his peers in the legal community, he waited until 2018 to self-publish Incident at Devil's Den, a number one bestseller on Amazon. His second book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, was published the week of Christmas 2020. It was the number one in new releases immediately and hit the number one bestseller status on February 10th. Since March of 2018, he's been a radio podcast guest over a hundred times on a variety of different shows, and now including ours. He's spoken at UFO Congress, Contact in the Desert, the Roswell UFO Festival, UFO Con, Alien Con, the Ascension Conference in Sedona, and the Ozark Digital Conference. His story was featured on an episode of the Travel Channel's My Horror Story, which originally aired in November of 2019.
2: So now, ladies and gentlemen,
0: without further ado,
2: Mr. Terry Lovelace.
0: Well, everybody, we are here with the
2: one and only Mr. Terry Lovelace. Terry, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here, Wayne a former Michigander. I am. I'm proud of it. I believe you say in your bio that you went to Western Michigan for your law degree. I did.
4: So there is the Michigan connection here. Definitely. My son's a graduate of Michigan state. I had a law office in Lansing for a long time, early nineties. Okay. All right. Um, so basically what I
2: want to do is let our audience hear your story. Um, and I will try to interject some questions. And if Michelle's got anything to add, she will add in some things as we go. Um, but just like,
4: take it away. Yeah. Tell sure. us what
1: happened.
4: Okay. Uh, I need need to briefly visit twenty twelve because that's actually when when things kind of uh, developed. I uh, I had the experience, the abduction, actually in, in June of nineteen seventy seven. And my wife um, is familiar with it. We were together then, together still. And um, but I never told a soul. Uh, I made my living in the law, and uh, then I became a public servant. And I knew that uh, in I'd lose my I'd lose my job with the government, and I'd lose the respect of my peers in the legal community, and it'd be the it'd be the end of my legal career. I mean, it's like it's like my friends in academia, or some levels of law enforcement, or. Air traffic controllers, you know, there's, there's a, uh, but I think that's going to change soon. <laughs>
2: I think June, June 10th, right? We're yeah. Crossing
4: fingers. We'll see what they say. Yeah. I've got a list of people to tell. I told you so. You that's know? right. That's yeah. right. Yeah. When you so, get all
2: the, when I get those, uh, those sideway glances at work, like, wait a minute, you're a science teacher and you're doing what with a podcast? Hmm. You know, Hey, have you not been paying attention to the news and uh, the government telling you,
0: but yeah, Terry, I've got students coming in today and quoting the podcast to me as they're walking in the room. I love it. I Michelle, was like,
4: that's great. Yeah. How, how old are the kids that you teach? If I could ask,
0: I have middle schoolers. So you're looking at any, anything from 12 to about 15.
2: Yeah. And then I teach high school ninth grade, which are 14 to 15 year olds. Yeah. Yeah
0: interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah they're well, they're so
4: curious. You yeah. Know? Yeah. They want to know like everyone else. So mm-hmm. what happened to me was I retired from the state of Vermont, where I was state's attorney for the board of medical practice in January of 2012. And we moved to Dallas area where we have our, our two kids and grandchildren. Uh, so um, October of that year, I had a uh, pain in my right knee. And it was really difficult to walk. So I had my wife take me to the emergency room uh, at the VA hospital. And they x-rayed my leg. And when they did, they found two uh, what they called anomalies. And uh, I don't know if you have my x-rays. or uh, I do. I've got one of them that you
2: sent along to me. And then there was a couple other pictures up on your website.
4: Yeah, TerryLovelace.com, I think, has the pair. And right. what they found was they found an item above my knee. Uh, by the way, neither one of these items had anything to do with the pain in my knee. The pain in my knee was caused by a Baker cyst, just a benign thing you catch. I mean, like you catch a cold, you know, two weeks of pain, it goes away You're you're good to go. Right. Uh, so, but they, um, they found these images in the process and above my knee, there's a structure, a square structure. that's obviously manufactured and has two wires connected to it. that go up my leg. And then below my knee, there's a floret pattern of uh, well, what the radiologist said looks like bone tissue. Um, and when I was in the ER, I, when I looked at those those images, I was stunned because where, where the image above my knee is located it is the spot that I used to call my numb spot because I was a runner, um, an avid runner, and really enjoy. I didn't run marathons, but I ran four or five miles a day. But I ran almost every day and. Every time I would hit the two mile mark of my run, I mean, give or take 50 yards, the spot on my right knee would go completely numb. Huh. And I could take a, a safety pin and delineate the edges of it. And it was about the size of a half dollar. And but it was a perfect circle. And uh, after about 30 minutes after my run, it would wear off and go away. It was kind of itchy and numb, kind of like mm-hmm. uh, a little like Novocaine in your mouth from the dentist. And I, I asked my doctor about it and she says, well, does it affect your run? And I said, no, because really it didn't. And she says, well, it sounds like some type of histemic reaction. She says, if it doesn't affect your run, I wouldn't worry about it. So okay. you know, I, I didn't. Um, but yeah, that, that, that object that they found in my leg in, in October, 2012 um, is right underneath that spot that would go numb. Mm. When I saw these, they, they brought the radiologist down actually to look at the x-rays, which is very unusual. Uh, and they took 24 shots in total and the radiologist comes down and he looks at the x-ray of above my knee. And he says, were you in some kind of accident? And I said, no, he says, well, I bet you got a heck of a scar. I said, no, I have no scars whatsoever. And he says, oh, well, you, you have to have a scar because it's impossible to violate the integrity of the skin and put something this deep into tissue and fascia and, and there not be a, a scar. So um, I took my pants off again and he took a look. And of course there is no scar.
2: So there's no evidence of any kind of a cut or anything on the outside of your skin that would indicate something being
4: put into your leg. None. And he, he was, he was visibly shaken. And I said, doctor, let me ask you, how often is it that you find an object like this in the body and there not be a corresponding scar? And he said, I've been a radiologist 23 years and I've never seen it before. He says, I cannot account how this thing got into your leg. And then he addressed the the images of the things below my knee that are like a florette pattern of bone. Um, And he says, I can tell from the x-ray film, uh, the density, these things are bone tissue, living bone tissue. But he said, "Um, what makes it so unusual is he's, I've never seen bone sprout in the middle of a muscle tissue before and then sprout multiple times and then arrange themselves in a symmetrical pattern. Uh, and he says, it's just, I've never seen this before. So, uh, that, that was, that was, that really changed things. That, that was a, um, epiphany for me because I really faced the fact that these things really did put their hands on me. I yes. mean,
2: I, was that at the point where the, where your story going back to 1977 really came back into light where you remembered what happened or have you always remembered what happened?
4: I've had, you know, understand I've, I have bits, I've snippets of uh, memory um, like from being in the ship and such. Yeah. Uh, and they play back as nightmares and uh, you know, two or three times a year I'll have uh you know, a screaming nightmare. And I, it's a repeat of the same ones and I have to wait for it to play out before I can wake myself up. And I also still have, um, what I call it, intrusive thoughts, which the psychologist told me you're actually experiencing flashbacks from the PTSD uh, Or I'll be cutting grass or I'll be, you know, setting the table. I'll be doing something completely unrelated. And then I'll have these images sharpest day flash in front of my mind and then my heart races and my, you know, so, um, Okay. Yeah, that was a pivotal moment. I I I um I was determined to take this to my grave and not never never speak about it. Uh, but that 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 changed things. And yeah. uh, after that I was determined to write a book and speak about it and it took me a while to gather all the information to do some research because I wanted to research Devil's Den. I was fortunate enough to have um or well, my wife. I credit her saving the notebooks that I had, because I had uh, two spiral ring notebooks with uh, everything, every fact I could think of. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I was, I was very concerned for a time that the OSI was going to take me to court for something. I didn't know what, trespass on the federal land or whatever. So if there was going to be a court martial, I wanted to have as much evidence as I could collect. Um, yeah, You know, I wasn't a lawyer then, but you know, I mean, it made common sense for me to uh, and I felt just felt compelled to, to preserve it. So. Now, when do you uh, think? Do you have a a
2: time frame that you think that those objects were implanted in you? Like, was it from the seventy seven experience, or was it when you were younger, or taken later?
4: You know, I I ask a uh, the radiologist in Vermont. You know, could these have been um remnants of objects in my leg as a child? And she said that's very doubtful. Um, because of the looking at the bone tissue and Mm. because of the thing below my knee, at least the thing below my knee, uh developed in adulthood. So, you know, it would have been consistent with happening for me at age twenty two. Okay. Um, that's when I think it happened. Um, Okay but i have no i have no memory of uh, of that whatsoever but that, and that's an assumption on my part but right the only thing i know for sure is that it did happen
2: yeah um well the evidence is overwhelming and speaking about what happened why don't we take a, a trip back to 1977 and explain to our listeners what happened <laughs> What do you sure. remember and what the books are about? Um, yeah, let's yeah. just, uh, open it yeah. up.
4: Yeah. Happy to it's the, it's the meat and potatoes of everything. There. I, uh, my friend, I, I worked in the ER, uh, I was an EMT first responder. We drove an ambulance, worked the night shift, 11 PM to 8 AM. Uh, I worked for three years with the same guy, uh, to, Tobias and he and I were best of friends. Our wives were friends, uh, you know, we had a, a decent relationship. We, on our days off, we'd play cards. So the four of us would play volleyball or something. You know, just just nice people. We both lived on the base at Whiteman Air Force Base in family housing. And it was, um, it was interesting. He came up to me one night and said, hey, man, I got an idea. Let's go camping.
1: Huh.
4: And, uh, you know, I knew he was from the city of Flint. I knew I was from St. Louis city. I'd never been camping. I, I pretty much knew he hadn't been camping either. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, what's, what's, what's up with this? And he says, well, think about it. He says, "Um, because this guy, Toby just lived to watch the night sky. I mean, he knew the constellations. He uh, you know, he could time satellites when they would come over. I mean, he just was just obsessed with the night sky.
2: Seems a very interesting hobby. Or interest, I should say, uh, for a city dweller, you know, for somebody yeah. from the, the inner city to all of a sudden, well, not all of a sudden, but at least to have an interest in astronomy. And um, wow. Hey, yeah,
4: Anyways, he I was a gifted mathematician, too. I mean, we had an extension college from Central Missouri State University on base. Okay. And he took a couple of college level physics classes and, you know, aced them both. And I'm sure he would have made a great astronomer or cosmologist.
2: Now, when you were working as a medic, this was while you were in the Air Force.
4: Yes. We, right. I, okay, yeah. I, was, I enlisted in 1973, uh, right out of high school, and uh, served for six years until 1979 when I left active duty and okay. became a civilian. So um, so Toby said, yeah, let's go camping. He said, I, I, I want to have a chance to look at the night sky without light pollution. And he says, and I know, and, and I, my, thought, my hobby was photography. I had a little dark room set up. I developed black and white prints. um, And I had a new camera that, you know, you can't really use. You can't walk around with a camera on a nuclear base and take pictures. It's just frowned upon.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting point um, that we should say, too, is that the base that you were stationed on was a strategic air command base, right? Uh, A SAC
4: base with nuclear weapons? It was. It had a squadron of B-52s you know, with the KC-135 flying gas stations right behind yep. them. Mm-hmm. And then there was a squadron of Minutemen II ICBM missiles spread out all over the countryside. Yeah. They were there. They got pulled in 1995, I believe, and moved up north to more desolate area because, you know, the area grew so much. Actually, Whiteman is the home of the B-2 bombers now. That's where they Okay, stay. yep. Okay. So Toby and I, um, I'll cut through a lot of stuff and get to the get to the evening we made our way down we entered the park and we previously agreed that we would not stay in the campground um uh, because the light pollution and number two we just we didn't want people all around us i mean you know it'd be like going camping in walmart's parking lot or something right and i mean right. we'd never been camping before but we're like we want to be real outdoorsmen, right so <laughs> we uh we uh, Took a paved road that turned into a dirt road, turned into a gravel road. And um, we made a few turns and I let Toby navigate because that's that's the way we always rolled is that he was the navigator. Even when we, we drove an ambulance, he was always the navigator because he had, he had an unerring sense of direction where I don't. So we're driving and he uh, he led us directly to this plateau and we found the road that went straight up. And when we drove up on it and this place was just a beautiful open meadow and it was, just, it was gorgeous. And we were just mm-hmm. like, Ooh, you know, high five. And this is, this is where we're going to stay. And, um, you know, eventually we set up camp. We did all the fun stuff you do when you go camping because it was all new to us, you know, right. and we enjoyed it. We had fun. And then later in the evening, uh, around nine o'clock PM, we were sitting on, um, we're, we're actually, we're laying back, kicked back in these air mattresses. We got the campfire between us. We got our $10 Kmart tent in back of us. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the coolers there, uh, you know, we're not drinking. I think we had a can of beer. I think we bought, we brought uh, either four or five beers total for the two days. So it's not like we were, and we weren't using any drugs. We were subject to urinalysis, um, frequently. So, um, we, we are up there, um sober as can be and uh you know this sounds so cliche i'm embarrassed to uh, admit it and i and i tell about it in devil's den incident at devil's den that the place went quiet um because it did and uh there were crickets and tree frogs that were so loud that we were having trouble carrying on a conversation back and forth across the uh, campfire and when it went quiet um Except for the crackling of the campfire, it would have sounded like you were in a sound booth. And not only was it quiet, it was still. I don't remember if I even mentioned this in the book or not, but we lost the breeze that we had. And uh, okay. it, it just, it gave me an eerie vibe. And uh, my friend, of course, like he's going to know, says, oh, yeah, you know, look, we've been laughing and cutting up. Don't worry about the bugs. They'll be back. Right. So I, I'm kind of putting the back of my mind. And we carry on conversation and uh, he turns his head to the West and he says to me, Terry, were those lights there on the horizon? And I'm like, what lights? Cause I knew there weren't any lights. And at first I couldn't see him cause his torso was in the way. And I stood up and I saw these, there was a cluster of three little stars in a tight triangle above the horizon. And they were too far above the horizon to have been lights from like a parking lot or a train uh, and they were absolutely stationary and we're debating what they are. Right. And while we're, cause I'm thinking it's a, it's some kind of weird plane because we are familiar with aircraft, but I, we didn't know any kind of plane that had that kind of trail light configuration at the front. I thought it might be a plane headed directly in our direction and we just couldn't see it move until it deviated its course by a degree or two. And then it looked like it's moving. Right. So, but uh, we watched it and for a, a couple minutes and then it finally did move. But what it did was it rotated like it were on an axis and the three in unison, you know, all remained equidistant to one another mm-hmm. and did about a 120 degree turn. And this pyramid aligned itself or actually not pyramid, I'm sorry, triangle aligned itself with the base of the triangle, a level with the horizon. And while we're watching it, a minute or two later, it took off and went straight up. Um, slowly at first. Uh, I don't know the distance. I assume some miles it's on the horizon. And I'm asking Toby, I'm like, man, you're the, you're the space guy. What what is this thing? Is this, you know, is this in, because the lights were kind of twinkling. Right. And I thought that would have meant that they would have had to been outside of our, uh, of our, of uh, our atmosphere. And he says, man, I don't know what these are. Um, And while we're watching something really peculiar happens. And that is that um, just like when the forest went calm, I can't explain this, but both of us experienced this uh, calm, this really uh, half sedated feeling Um, and all that anxiety and nervousness that I had about uh, the quietness in the forest, that was all gone. Uh, And I was, um, I felt semi-sedated and You know, I felt uh, dissociated in some way. I felt like an observer. I was like, I was, you know, distanced from it. I was, I was an observer. I wasn't a participant. Uh, It's a weird place in my head, but that's the best I can, I can, I can describe. Almost like an out of body experience. You know, yeah. I've I've talked to some NDE people who contacted me and they told me they experienced the same thing when they left their bodies is that they felt that dissociated feeling, that calm, no panic, you know, and they're looking at at their body and that, that should elicit some kind of emotional response. Just like with us, we saw these things in the sky that surely should have elicited some kind, you know, our emotions were just muted. We were just, uh, and I think it speaks directly to the level of influence that these things have over us. We were under their influence when that, when that first, when things fell silent, I think that's when, when, uh, their influence began because I think they, whoops, I think they first influenced the, uh, the bugs before they did us.
2: Yeah. Now um, I'll go ahead. Uh, I'll I'll come, I'll come at you with another question here.
4: (laughs) Break in anytime. So (laughs) seriously. Uh, So we're watching this thing uh, and we're seeing this three star configuration go straight up and uh, it got smaller And then, uh, it reached the ceiling. I'm guessing 10,000 feet. I don't know. i got nothing to base that on. And then it changed orientation to flat where it was parallel with the earth. And then we could see three, three points of light with the middle being the apex of the triangle pointed directly in our direction. And then it started on this glide plane downward. And again, um, our emotions were muted. I mean, you know, two human beings sharing an experience like this should be saying, uh, using what I'm seeing, what is this thing, validating right. each other's experience, but there was none of that.
2: Now, do you think that, that did you ever get the feeling that you guys were being observed when you first noticed it? Like, did, did you get that eerie feeling? Like sometimes people get that sixth sense of like, we're being watched you know, kind of a thing. Did you, did you get that at all during this time?
4: No, quite the opposite. Just I got, opposite. Uh, okay. I got that dissociated, uh, calm. Um, I broke my arm once and they gave me a drug called Versed. Okay. And, um, that's a, uh, I looked it up cause it was an odd sensation and that's a hypnotic. Um, and it also has an amnesia quality, which hmm. lets you forget some of the unpleasantness. Um, but it was absolutely good pain management. I really didn't have any pain, all right. uh, but it put me in this weird place that reminded me of where we were back in 77, when we were on the, on the plateau. So as now, it, did, go ahead.
2: I was just going to ask, did, uh, Toby have any reaction? Once you saw the apex of this, um, triangle craft kind of point towards you
4: and start moving towards you guys at all? You know, the only thing I can remember him saying was they're really moving now. Ah. Um, and I mean, they, I mean, being plural, but we knew we were looking at one single solid object. I don't right use the word they, but it or, or, or they being the, you know, the the pilots, you know, whatever it was. Uh, because as they started to the glide plane down, it was moving faster. And I remember him saying that. Uh, but... Other than that, there was no conversation back and forth between us, like, like there probably should have been. Mm. And this thing glided in and stopped directly over the top of this meadow at about, I'm guessing, but I bet I'm pretty close, 3,000 feet. And at this point, we could not see the side of it. All we could see was the, the underneath of it. and uh, And it so was it big.
2: Just, it just covered up the sky right above you.
4: It did. And you know, thankfully, we had camped off to the side. If we had camped where I want, I wanted to camp uh, directly in the center of the plateau. Mm-hmm. And my buddy was real. Matter of fact, that was kind of an unusual exchange. He was, uh, he would usually cave, you know, if, if I really wanted to do something. Right. Uh, but he was he was uh, dead set against that he wanted to camp off by the tree line. And I'm glad we did, because that way this thing wasn't directly over our heads. We were offset just a bit. Right. And
2: now if people are interested, you can do what I did is I went on to Google Maps and I did a search for Devil's Den State Park, Arkansas. And when that pops up, if you look from the little target marker of Devil's Den and look to the northwest, you will see a very bizarre trying almost triangular shaped clear cut area and that is where you and toby camped and i will put uh um this information up on our website with these screenshots that i took because i took screenshots of these and so everybody can get a uh instead of just a mental picture a visual of this area where they camped and it still looks clear cut to this day with some very interesting marks in the ground that some of them look like vehicle maybe you know a vehicle that went up there to continuously cut or clear off this plateau area but other ones are very symmetrical look like solid impressions that you can see from a satellite so it has to be big so i guess terry how big is that cleared out area of devil's den roughly
4: roughly uh it's roughly a city block uh okay a, a long city block on each length of the three and it you know it the thing that we saw was exactly the same size a city oh, block wow. at length on a on on all sides so, so it, it would be,
2: just it would just
4: fit into this area that's right okay all right so yeah uh it was strange i got this um I finally got this image to load uh and I'm sending it to you right now. Okay. That has the, uh, the picture the elevation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and how DC... high up,
2: how high up does it say that, that, that area that clearing is
4: above sea level? Does you it know, I, I, I don't have that. Um, okay. But what I remember was, was this, that the top of that plateau was dead level with the treetops. So mm. and it was thick, Thick forest, um, you know, pine trees, a uh, mix of deciduous trees. Um, but yeah, it was it was absolutely level with the treetops. Wow. So, I mean, you couldn't see if you were, were hunting for the place, you had to be right up on it to find it. Right. Or from above. Or from above, yeah. Yeah.
2: Because I'm looking at the images and I can tell all the way around this clearing is other than a small, looks like a small trail coming into that clearing. It is thick
4: forest all the yeah. way
2: around that area.
4: You know, I noticed on that those Google images that mm-hmm. uh, there are some buildings. Uh, you can see if you back out, yep. uh, and I, I can assert that back in 1977, none of that was there. Yeah, This was a remote area in 1977.
2: Yeah, so everybody, we do have to remember as well that this is taking place now like 50 years ago. So, like Terry is saying, if you do look at the area and you see there are some buildings, uh, again, scales kind of hard without a uh, uh, the actual map scale listed on the images. But um, there, they're few and far between now. It's not like it's built up around there or anything like that. But it does look like one of the images I saw looks like somebody had a a very nice like camper sitting in a, a clearing. And you can tell because there's like the awning that's pulled over. You can tell it's a long, rectangular-shaped type of uh, vehicle. You can you can tell that from the satellite imagery, which is kind of scary to think that you can find somebody camping in a satellite photo, you know, um, in the middle of the woods. But you you can you can definitely tell um, that that's a newer. You wouldn't find a vehicle like that, I guess I should say, in 1977 that looks no. like that. <laughs>
4: yeah, I, I agree. I don't think so. I don't think so. Right. Yeah. right. And so, I don't know if we mentioned for the audience or not that that's, that is federal land owned by the Bureau of Land Management.
2: That's one of the things I was going to ask you. In the book you had talked about, um,
4: you had to go through a gate to get to this area. Yeah, and I'm I'm told by someone that visited there recently that there that still there is there still is a chain that keeps you from getting onto the property. And uh when we were there, um there was a chain, there were two posts on either side of the road and a chain that went across, and in the middle was a was a very sternly worded keep out, do not enter, um sign, no hunting, no camping, no fishing, no nothing, you know, no no nothing. Right. Uh and it had a a government emblem on it, but we didn't pay any attention. I'm sure it was a federal emblem. Um, and uh, we, uh, I thought, oh, we got to back up and go find another way. And Toby, who's on the passenger side, says, no, man, wait a minute. I got this. He hops out of the car. And what they had done is they'd taken uh, that chain and looped it and formed a noose with a padlock. And they just draped it over the opposing <laughs> post on the nail. Because, <laughs> you know, rangers are busy, man. They yeah, got to right keys you know they can get out of the truck drop it drive in so that's what we did we we dropped it and we drove in and uh we uh you know we probably should have put that chain back up but uh we didn't we didn't think about it i don't i don't know if it makes any difference or not really
2: right well you might have had issues when you left there if it was up you would have had to stop and take it back down (laughs) take it back down um now whose idea now this is interesting Whose idea was it to go to this place called Devil's Den for camping? Toby's. Toby's was Toby's idea. The astronomer.
4: And, and the astronomer. And yeah. it was an obsession. I mean, it really did. It became an obsession. And well, in the uh, book,
2: you say you guys were were you were you were hesitant to go along with the idea, but he was completely. Uh, fired up for the whole idea for like a couple weeks ahead of time, and then you kind of jumped on board, like, Yeah, we're gonna go be outdoorsmen. Is that uh,
4: yeah, uh you know, I kind of got on board with it, especially when you know we had the discussion, and I'm like, man, where are we gonna drive six hours when we're within 30 minutes of a bunch of nice parks,
1: right? Right?
4: And he made the point, you know, sometimes the uh, the journey is half the adventure, you know, let's have a road trip, you know, let's make this right. fun, yeah. So, you know, he had a point. Um, I didn't know then that, um, the history of this place, if I'd known that we certainly, I I would never have gone there. Oh, okay.
2: Um, what, what is some of that history?
4: What, what did you find out? Well, let me tell you real quick. I, um, during the year that I wrote the book in 2017, I subscribed to a couple of Arkansas papers and I looked for stories relative to devil's den. And uh, I found that in March of 2017, there was a young lady named uh, Monica Murphy from one of the local small towns who was missing, went missing, young mother, children at home. And a week after she went missing, they found her at the bottom of a hundred foot cliff uh, where she had jumped or fallen. And the uh, Bartlesville medical examiner ruled it a suicide. Yeah. I don't know any more details. I didn't get, I would love to have had an autopsy report to see how he arrived at that conclusion. But um, that, that was the first one. The second one, which was much more dramatic was um, in, let me see, August of 2017 from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, there was a young man named Rodney Letterman and he and his friend uh, drove down the devil's den uh, with the idea of either camping or staying, I'm not, I'm, it's not quite clear, but the two of them parked their truck in the parking lot and went for a walk on the Butterfield trail. And that Butterfield trail cuts right through the center of the park. And it's called the Butterfield trail. Cause it was part of the Butterfield stagecoach line, which was the first intercontinental stagecoach line. Okay. And, uh, which was an operation until 1859, right between, right before the civil war, they quit operation. Um, and uh, it's paved now and it's a nice walk. It's an easy walk um, and you can walk on it for miles. And uh, the two of them were walking and uh, they're about a mile, mile and a half into their walk. And Rodney who had asthma tells his friend, hey, I forgot my inhaler, you know, I forgot. I'm having an asthma attack. Would you mind running back and gra- to the truck and grabbing it for me? And his friend's like, sure, no sweat. So his friend, runs back to the truck, grabs the inhaler, and he's back in 35, 40 minutes. um, And there's no Rodney Letterman. Now, Hmm. You know, there are other people on the trail too. Um, They're they're not out there alone. And uh, he finds Rodney's phone laying on the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but my phone's either in my pocket or in my hand. Uh, I wouldn't lay it on the ground.
1: Absolutely. Yep.
4: And plus, you know, Rodney was having an asthma attack, you, the terrain off of the trail was pretty rugged. And I don't think he could have, I don't think he could have navigated that.
2: Right. Did they ever find what happened?
4: Well, I got this from a Russellville Police Department, pardon me, Russellville Sheriff's Department, uh, Deputy Sheriff, uh, with the agreement of anonymity. Um, He told me that they brought in their, their hounds, because they have they have bloodhounds uh, to try to catch a, uh, a scent. And they, they went to the truck and uh, they caught, they caught a scent um, from something in Rodney's and uh, they, the dogs were on, on a trail and they tracked the, the, the trail right to the phone. And then they sat down and I said, well, I know nothing about dogs. What does that mean? And yeah. he said, that means the trail ends. And I said, well, where could he have gone? And he said he could have gone up or he could have gone down, but the trail ended. So my guess would be up. Um, Yeah. But what happened, what happened was, uh, and I wrote that in the book uh, when I published it in March of 2018. And I said, I'd update the readers if there was some, if something changed. And in March of 2019, uh, something did change. And there was this young couple uh, walking down the trail And the young lady says to her friend, is that an albino turtle? And there was like an eight foot large log cut um, that was lining the trail. And uh, right in the center of it, perfect center, there was a triangular shaped white thing. Uh, And the gentleman walks over and picks it up and he immediately recognizes that it's human bone. And it was the top of rodney letterman's skull with jagged edges oh wow bleached white in the sunshine and you know from my from my days as a prosecuting attorney i i mean the first thing i thought of was that's a staged crime scene yeah because the park rangers were adamant that that wasn't there um, the day before or or they would have noticed it because it was just so open and obvious uh, and it was sent, uh, they treated it as a, as a crime scene uh, with a forensic pro- protocol and shipped the bone off to the Bartlesville, Oklahoma, medical examiner, who determined by DNA that it was the remnants of uh, Rodney Letterman. And that mm. is all they've ever found of Rodney Letterman. Not that was shoe, it. That was it. Not another bone, not a shoe, not a piece of clothing, nothing. So, that- yeah, it's, it's, you know what, it's a. Like I said, I didn't know that the place had uh such a weird history. I when I was writing the book, I reached out to um the area that Devil's Den is in has uh two is is there are two Native American tribes that lay claim to the area, uh the Kato and the Kahino tribe. And I talked to a woman who was a medicine woman from the Kato tribe in Russellville, Russellville, Arkansas, who told me, yeah, you know, I uh, she was very kind. She says, "From oral tradition, uh, I can't tell you years, but I can tell you many generations that's been cur- we consider that cursed land. We'll cut across it to transit from point A to point B, but we won't camp, hunt or fish there." So um, from there I, I through a connection from my son at Michigan State, I talked to a, an archaeologist who was familiar with the they call it the Ozark region. Uh, southern Missouri, northern Arkansas, um, and he said that there are Neolithic points, you know, uh, going back 9,000 years, found all around there, and uh, Native American uh, arrowheads dating back a couple thousand years or so, uh, but nowhere within Devil's Den, within the state park, have they ever found a Neolithic tool or uh, remnants of a campsite. So, um, you know, I, I, I guess that's Nobody can tell me where the name devil came from.
2: I was uh, just going to ask you, do you, do you have any background on why they gave it the name devil's den? And I understand there's a, a cave system or there somewhere there is a cave that, that gets mentioned as part of the local geology where they think that uh, a part of a, a hill or a side of a mountain had collapsed exposing a, a cave system, but, I mean, this would have happened a long time ago. So I was just curious if, if you had any information
4: on that. I, I do. I do. Uh, again, from the same source uh, who told me that there is an extensive cave system there, but that uh, it's locked up. It's locked up with iron gates and uh, you can't get in there. And uh, the reason is, the stated reason is that there's a... Um, a lot of bats in there and then of course there's guano and um, there's some type of fungus some type of organism that's uh, can give you a respiratory disease so they don't want people going in there
2: yeah a version of SARS kind of like yeah, COVID something. supposedly yeah so um, okay so something just hit me in the head you published your book in March of 2018
4: yes March 18th to be precise
2: march 18th of 2018 michelle when did we see that giant triangle
0: that would have been march of 2018 march 9th
2: march 9th 2018 and then guy had his so we did it if if anybody's interested you can go back and look at uh one of our or listen to one of our episodes with guy Merritt describing his triangular um encounter south of flint in his in 1994 he encountered his on march 18th 1994 that's spooky now terry i gotta ask you in 1977 when you guys saw this thing hovering above your campsite what month was it it was june oh it was june June. okay good
0: (laughs) we're working on a theory that's something about the month of march
2: the ides of march right yeah yeah
0: okay so
2: um man I, you know i just i i have to say i my the hypotheses that are going off in my brain tell me that these things that are on these triangular craft whatever they are what these things are they're not good everybody i've talked to that has experienced so far the the triangle craft whatever this is has not had a very good experience now uh, Terry if you want to continue on with your story as this thing is hovering over to kind of see where I'm
4: going with this (laughs) let me continue with that but then I want to come back to that because uh, okay that's that's a that's a very uh, that's a very interesting point and I got some opinions I'd like to share awesome so we watched this thing as I, I think I left off that it had uh, parked more or less at 3000 feet over that, uh, that area of the triangle. And um, right. Like I said, we were offset to the side. We were both under that uh, weird semi-sedated state and uh, uh, it shined some lights down at us and some, a couple a laser beam uh, type of thing that danced around the campsite. Um And again, our emotions were muted. We were just like, oh, look at that. You know, no conversation between us. And um, the lights were shut off and it was still just incredibly quiet out there. And Toby stood up and said, show's over. And he grabbed his uh, air mattress with this thing over our heads almost and walked over to the tent, threw his air mattress in and just fell on top of it. And I had transitioned from semi-sedated to sleepy because there's a distinct difference between the two. You know, I felt this calm, but now I am sleepy. I mean, and I, and I want to go to sleep. I mean, I'd been happy to sleep on that, on that um, inflatable mattress right there where I was, but I felt compelled to go into the tent. And that's what I did. I didn't take off my shoes or my shirt or anything. I just drew my air mattress in fell on top of it. And uh, I was out the second my head hit that plastic pillow. I was, I was out. That sounds very similar to when I had in 2018, I
2: had my hip replaced mm-hmm. and before I went into the surgery mm-hmm. room, the, the anesthesiologist came by and was talking to me, gave me a shot into my IV, which made me exactly how you're describing before you got sleepy, which just made me, huh? Yeah, you for it. Yeah. yeah. Just Oh man, dude! will you be my friend? This pain is, (laughs) is gone. They wheel me back. And I know I'm being wheeled back into the, the surgical room and the the operating room. And I know what's going on. And then they tell me, okay, sit up and put your legs over the edge of the, the gurney and lean forward. I feel a, a, a little wetness on my back where they were numbing the skin a little bit and then they said okay laid down and i was gone there there was no counting none of that stuff i was done the next thing i knew i was being woke up yeah and yeah, there's that, no that in between. That, there are no dreams there's nothing absolutely nothing so as you're you're recounting your experience i'm thinking man that that sounds like that twilight sleep kind of a, a you know the first shot before surgery then the
4: next thing is out that's, that's exactly the scenario. Wow. And, and I woke up, and I don't know, some hours later, looking back, I, I can figure out that it was about an hour before sunrise. But I woke up with this flood of intense white, yellow, and orange lights coming through the canvas of the tent. I mean, real intense. And I woke up to these flashing lights. And I'm, I don't have my wits about me. And I'm thinking, you know, what is this? And then I'm thinking, Um, maybe these are the overhead flashing lights of a park ranger's truck right there to kick us out. That made sense. Right. And I also heard this uh, low droning sound that, um, you know, if you've ever stood next to a big piece of industrial machinery, you know, you can feel that. It's, it's more of a feeling in your chest than it is something audible that you registers with your ears and your hearing.
2: Sure. It's like, uh, they're like compression waves coming from a, a piece of heavy machinery or um, where if it's operating, you know, it's at, at such a intensity that it will vibrate the air like around it, if you're close enough and, and you can pick that up. Absolutely. Or it could be a very strong magnetic field which I think you will probably talk about what you were exposed to at, at some point that has to do with uh, a watch, I believe. Yeah, uh, I had, I,
4: we both wore mechanical watches. I mean, they are integral to being an EMT. You need them. Right. And we kept them pretty much synchronized. Uh, and my watch had stopped at 240. It was an Elgin. It was a nice wind-up watch, a mechanical watch, you know, standard of the day. And I don't remember what brand, but Toby had a decent watch. Mine stopped at 240 on the nose. His stopped at 241. And those watches never worked again. And supposedly, according to the manufacturer, the warranty was voided because it had been exposed to uh, an electromagnetic field. Because the watch was eight months old. uh, And it was a gift from my wife. And uh, it went back to the Elgin Watch Company in Chicago, Illinois. And I wish I'd saved that letter. I wish I'd saved that letter and that watch.
2: Yeah, because they wrote you back and said, sorry, uh, nothing we can do. You exposed this watch to a very high electromagnetic field, and that's Contrary you. to
4: the conditions of your warranty, yes. Wow. I wish I'd saved that. That that would have been gold to have.
2: That, absolutely, because that that's a scientific test that's been done on a piece of equipment that is a key piece of evidence. Man awesome. That's just insane. <laughs> that is insane. It is insane. It, it, it really is. So
4: yeah, so I wake up and, and I hear these things. I see these flashing lights and uh, I sat up and I noticed that my boots had been unlaced uh, almost all the way down. And I knew I didn't go to bed like that. And, and, and I wouldn't have gone to bed like that. I mean, if I had to got up, get up in the middle of the night. And for some unknown reason, run. I mean, I couldn't run. It'd be a trip hazard. I'd be all over the place. I would have left my boots on laced up or I would have taken them off, but not in between. So I'm annoyed. I'm not frightened. There's no fear yet. Um, So I take off my boots and my socks are on sideways. Now I knew, I knew certain I didn't do that. And it hadn't, it hadn't hit me yet that they had undressed us and redressed us. And, uh, I take off my socks, I put them on properly, I put my boots on, I lace them up. Then I turned my attention to my friend, and uh, he had a very dark skin. And in the flashes of the white light in particular, I could see tracks of tears. I guess if the saline in the tears fluoresce under the bright light. And I could see the streak down his face, and he'd been crying. And I couldn't imagine what would make this guy cry. And I asked him something about, what is it, man? Is it park rangers? What's out there? And he just said, I think they're still out there. And I'm like, who's still out there? And he didn't answer me. And he had an episode of, uh, uh, he was hyperventilating for a time. And then he gets his hand on his breathing. I look out the flap of my tent on my side. And I saw this thing that had been, you know, 3,000 feet over our heads when we went to bed has descended and now is just about 30 feet over the floor of the meadow. And that's why these lights, which were on the points of the triangle, these lights were so, so intense because they were just 30 feet over our heads now, instead of being 3000 feet up in the air. And uh, that's when I got, and I saw an image of the side of the thing and it looked like a medical building and it was lit up like crazy. And I had, I hadn't, I can't know, I, I can't understand, how is this thing not seen in five counties? It makes no sense.
2: Yeah, could you uh, relate what you uh, kind of estimate the dimensions of this craft
4: to be? Yes, um, I think I have a hand drawing of it on my web, on my terrylovelace.com page, uh, that I d- actually did that originally on a uh, piece of notebook paper, and I redrew it. Um, whenever I publish the book, but it's, it's accurate. Uh, And if you look in the lower left corner, you can see a little bitty images, two little stick figures, a car and a tent. And I did that to try to give it some kind of scale. Um, You know, I'm not a cartographer. I don't have, you know, a good sense of that. Uh, But I can, I can say this, that it filled that metal. It was a, a city block long on each length of the triangle and it was deep. And it was five stories deep. Wow. Uh, So it was now, it looked like a triangle, now looking more like an office building. Um, And it was was an incredible sight. And then we saw, I saw, uh, especially in the flashes of light, what looked like a dozen, maybe 15, I didn't count them, I probably should have, or what I first thought were children. And I asked my friend, I said, Toby, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere? And that's when he said, Terry, man, those ain't no little kids. Look at them. They're not human beings. And when he said that, I mean, that was, I was stunned. And I looked again and I looked, I looked closer and he was right. And then my fear level jumped from a two to a 10 plus. And I was yeah. just absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, terrified that we were going to sneeze or cough or do something to draw their attention. And these little guys might come over and see us. I mean, we had no way of knowing they were long done with us. Right. So after, after a while, we watched these guys and they're just walking around like tourists. I mean, it's not like they're looking for something lost in the ground. They're walking around. They have um, they're they're three feet tall or a little taller. They're gray. I don't know if that's garments. We were too far away to tell if that's garments or clothing. Um, They're had large Large heads, spindly bodies, uh, tiny bodies, um, disproportionately long arms. And they they walked with a distinctive gait. They walked like their knees were hinged to go backward, like an inch or two with every step. So it gave the impression they were dragging their feet behind them when they made a step forward. It was a weird thing to describe, but that's the best way I can describe it. And then there, there came a light again from underneath this thing in the dead center, and this was a column of white light about 30 feet in diameter. It was just about as broad as this thing was tall, off the floor of the meadow. Mm. And it just clicked on like someone hit a switch. And it was um, have you ever seen a, a high- power searchlight cut through fog? You know it has that oh yeah, visible characteristics. Well, that, that's what this was, except there was no fog. As soon as it clicked on, all these little guys it drew their attention. And they all started, uh, not in a rush or a run, but they all started to meander uh, toward this thing. And while we're watching, they would step into this light in twos and threes and just pixelate out right in front of our eyes. It would take about 20 seconds, but they would just pixel out and be gone. And then the next, they were all, like I say, they were in pairs and threes, all separated. And then they'd wait for one group to, to... pixelate out, disappear, and then the next group of two or three would step in, and then 20 seconds or so, they'd be gone until (laughs) the last two were gone. And as soon as the last two were gone, uh, that light shut off, and that droning noise that we'd been hearing shut off, and then it was dead silent again. And the lights changed from multicolored to kind of a... uh, uh, Not kind of. It changed to totally white. And if you look at the drawing, you can see what I call a light bar. And there was a little beam of light that would travel up and down that bar. So that light bar wasn't illuminated fully. It was lit by this beam of light that would travel up and down it. And uh, we saw this thing take off, and it didn't take off like a rocket ship. It took off like a hot air balloon and just lifted up and made a slight turn. Uh, slow at first and then picked up speed and we watched it till it was three stars and then one star and then gone gone wow. and we were we were terrified to leave the tent i didn't want to leave the tent i told toby man i'm staying here till daylight and we had no idea knowing what time it was we knew it was after 2 40 a.m that's all we knew uh and toby convinced me that we needed to go and uh i i it was only a piece of canvas but I didn't want to be exposed from the tent to the car. I felt like I'd be vulnerable.
2: Yeah. But at least the canvas has given you some type of cover or cover or, or, or yeah. At
4: least you can't easily be seen, but yeah. And to this day, I can't cut across an open field. I won't cut across an, I'll walk a mile and a half to go around, but I won't cut across an open, an open field. I just, I feel vulnerable. I'll, I'll have yeah.
2: You're, you're, you're exposed at that point. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So do you think at that point is when they put those objects in you then at that point?
4: You know, it, it, the question is how long were we, were we aboard this thing? And I mm-hmm. have no way of knowing. Um, so it was probably around four o'clock in the morning when we woke up. Okay. And um, probably around 10, 1030 at night when we went to bed at the latest so somewhere within that range. Uh, something Six to happened. seven hours? Yeah. Like I, and I don't know if all of that was spent on, on board or not. Um, I do have some memories of being aboard the ship um, that I'll share with you. I'll share one with you real quick. Okay. And that was that um, we were frozen. Uh, I mean that we were paralyzed. We were standing. And I had my boots and my clothing in my hands like, like this in front of my chest. And the only thing I could move was I could move my eyes. I could scan left, right, up and down, but I couldn't tilt my head or turn my head. Uh, I couldn't move a muscle other than my rotate my eyes. And I could perceive that my friend was next to me. I don't know how, I don't think I saw him, but I, I knew he was there. And um, we saw these gray guys running around all over the place. And I have a real quick uh, theory about what I think they are. Okay. And, uh, I've said this before and I've had people say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. I've seen these things. You're totally wrong. That's not what they look like. That's not what they do. Um, well, you know, I can only share my objective subjective, you know, opinion of what I saw, what I experienced and, uh, you know, without embellishment and this is what I saw. And, uh, my guess is there are probably multiple kinds of greys. But the things that I witnessed, I thought were, they weren't sentient in the way that you and I are, are alive. I thought they were more like something manufactured, you know, maybe artificial intelligence, quantum computing, who knows. Um, but they were task oriented. And in the book, I think I call them worker bees for that reason.
2: Yeah. My, the, the idea I had going through my head were these were like some kind of drones yeah. Some AI type drones or something along those lines. That's exactly right. Yeah. Doing yeah. the dirty work of of uh and, and I call it dirty work because like I said, the, the experiences I know there's some people out there that say, you know, they have communications with these things and they're telling us save the planet, yada, yada, you know, you know, free the whales or whatever the case may be. But the ones that stick out to me are the ones that are traumatic cases like with you, that to me, that rings more true. Because if you look at how humans have been to animals, to each other, how we explore and do things, we just kind of, you know, we we tag cattle, you know, no big deal. You know, put a little tag on their ear and then we harvest them. You know, there's no real right there's no emotion there's no empathy just very indifferent and and these things and these stories that i read to me just scream of being being elaborate being observed by these things or whatever they are i i mean i i don't know that's just my initial response now that could be my own personal Uh, Background and experience of my life, bringing things in. I'm not a very trusting person, and you know now you're talking about something that we have no idea what it is. I'm very guarded, you know, in those regards. And when I hear these kind of stories, I just, you know, I think of the farmer. Okay, let's get those those pigs onto the the truck and get them off the slaughter. You know, no no big deal. I've got a friend that I work with who, you know, was a farmer, grew up on a farm and now he teaches chemistry and, you know, he tells us stories about, yeah, you just go and grab a pig, you wrap a chain around its back legs, lift it up and you bleed it. And, you know, that's the way you do things. They're animals. And I'm like, these things are taking humans, putting things in them, following them, seem very indifferent. They don't respond to many cries or, you know, why are you doing this? And the only response I've heard from some people, and I think you even say it in your book, why, you know, they, they will say to you in your head, why are you scared? Why, you know, we're not going to hurt you, but that's exactly what they're doing. Right. So I don't have a very good sense about (laughs) what these things are and what their purpose is. So
4: that's, and I agree with you. I, yeah. I agree. You know what's crazy is, as a kid at age eight and age eleven, I saw flying saucers. Now that was cool. You know that was that was a non-threatening, exhilarating event for a child. I mean, I had no sense of danger whatsoever. Um, but I think the things that took us in 1977, I don't. These were not the same. These were not the same beings. I don't know.
2: Well, it wasn't even the same craft.
4: No, it right, wasn't. Yep. I, I, yeah, and that, that's funny you say that, because I—I when we first saw these three stars, I thought, could that be a, a spaceship? No, it can't be. I know I'm an expert on spaceships. So I saw them twice. They're saucers. This isn't a saucer, ergo, it isn't a spaceship, right? Right, right. So, so
2: um, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you about. You talk about seeing other saucers. Now, did um, at the base you were stationed at, did you and Toby get called out? to a sighting on the base where there was something hovering above the base that you guys were called out to in the book. Oh,
4: there, the, there are actually two stories
2: there. Okay. There is, okay. There is, I'm probably confusing them because I listened to the audio book. And so I'm recalling your voice from the book telling me, yeah. so I'm probably mixing them together.
4: Yeah, there were there, that was 1975. And there were, um, okay. there are actually two events that I, that I, uh, that I tell, uh, the first one was, uh, bitter cold, January, 1975. We got a call to one of the missile sites and it was about 30 miles away or something. They're in remote areas in the middle of, sure. you know, 10,000 acres of soybeans or something. Um, you know, keep them away from populated areas. Cause they're obviously targets for the Soviets or, right. So we got a call, um, that was a little bit different. It was uncharacteristically slim on facts, but it just gave us a uh, uh, notice that there was a missile technician working on a missile at a launch control facility called Kilo five. Uh, it's not there anymore. So it did not make any difference if I say the name. And uh, so we hopped in the, hopped in the ambulance and we went out there and uh, it was a weird evening. Uh, we got to within about a mile of this place and here was a. Um, blue car with a security policeman inside the car. I'm sure he was supposed to be standing outside the car, but, uh, you know, it, it's cold outside, you know, it's like below zero. Right. And I pull up, I roll my window down in the ambulance and I'm like, Hey man, what's up at Kilo five. And he says, man beats me, but, uh, you know, you're the only one going in and you're the only one coming out that I'm aware of. I don't know what's going on. Hmm. I said, all right, thanks, man. And, uh, we drove in, and it was a weird orange glow because these security police trucks had orange and red flashing lights on top, on light bar. And uh, but it was so cold that there was this big cloud of steam from from automobile exhaust. Sure. And that that cloud is just pulsating with these flashing lights all out of sequence, made for a really eerie uh, sight. And we rolled up and there was, I think a captain He's either a captain or a first Lieutenant. And I, I can't remember for certain which, but I'm, I'm going to say captain. Cause I think that's what he was, uh, standing there with a radio in his hand, um, and a parka and he's freezing. And, uh, he motions me over and I pull over and I said, yes, sir. And he says, your man's fine. Uh, we got him, we got him. And there's a little triangular or not triangular, uh, trapezoid shaped like brick building that you go in and there's a desk and then there's an elevator with one button, you know, down to take you down to the base of the missile. So the technicians can go in and work on a thing. And he says, your, your guys in the building, uh, we got his foot elevated on a uh, trash can. We think he may have broken an ankle or something, but he's walking and you know, he's at least talking and he's, he's fine. He didn't hit his head or anything. Um, but for right now, nobody comes in and nobody goes out till I say so. Park the ambulance over there and stay off the radio. I'm like, weird, you know, yes, sir. You know, whatever you say, Mm
1: -hmm. roll
4: the window up, we pull over and we park. And uh, Toby and I are like, man, this is kind of odd. You know, why can't we go take care of our guy? You know, we got a patient that's hurt that needs attention. And uh, Toby says, well, you know, I'm going to go have a little look-see. And uh, he was kind of um, impulsive. And I'm like, man, you know, we've been ordered to stay in the ambulance. And he's like, no, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to check it out. I'll I'll get back to you. (laughs) He hops out of the ambulance and I can't see anything because the inside of the ambulance is frosting over. Right. And uh, two or three minutes pass and he opens my door and grabs me by the shoulders and says, man, you have got to see this expletive, expletive, you have got to see this. And he's pulling me out of the, out of the ambulance And I'm like, well, wait, wait, man, let me grab my park. I grab my park. I walk out, and here's Toby and this lieutenant, and they're looking up, and uh, lieutenant's mouth is wide open, you know, Uh, and uh, I'm like trying to figure out what's everybody fixated on. And then I look, and about 50 feet over that blue cap that domed that that sat on top of the tube that launched the, the missile. 50 feet up in the air was this thing about the size of a full-size van, and it was matte black in color, and it was absolutely still. I mean, and it, you know, when you look at it, you're saying like, well, where are the wires or something? It's just so unnatural to see something like that. No lights, no noise, just, um, and it was multifaceted. That's why I called it a black diamond. Um, my friend Toby, of course, being a mathematician had counted the facets and made a mental memory of it, was able to draw a pretty good picture of it. I wish I had it. Mm. Um, and, uh, while we're watching the thing shoots off and goes from zero to 500 miles an hour and is just gone. And I'm thinking, boy, we're busted now for disobeying an order. And this, this captain just smiles at me like, man, did you see what I just saw? And I'm right. smiling back and said, whoa, that's pretty cool. And then we both, you know, snap back into our respective roles. And he's like, all right, I'll get the gate open, get in your ambulance. You can go in and get your man. <laughs> right. Wow. So, so that that was uh, Kilo 5. But the the other thing that I mentioned was that there were numerous sightings on the base. Now, I never witnessed this. This is hearsay. Okay. Uh, but I was told this by several security policemen. Um, also, there's a gentleman by the name of Robert Hastings, who wrote a book called UFOs and Nukes. Ah, uh, yes. Yep. Strangely enough, I was just looking at that one on Amazon as well. Uh, I just got an email from him. He's a friend of mine. We talk about <laughs> once a week. It's a great coincidence. Oh,
2: awesome. Awesome. Uh, we'll get him to come on the podcast.
4: <laughs> we'll talk to him about that. He's... Um, yeah. Yeah. So we... These security policemen, and I heard this from three or four different guys that weren't connected, you know, kind of tell me under their breath, uh, you know, man, I was at I was at the armory, or I was at the uh, uh, ammo, uh, I forget what they call it, a bunker where they kept the nukes, um, and uh, he, he was guarding out there, and they saw a orange ring, like thing, fly in, hover over the bunker and shoot down a laser beam at the bunker, I Guess I guess scanning it, that's an assumption on my part, but, but something, and then that lasts for you know 30 seconds or so, and then this laser light would vanish and the thing would just take off. Um, and I heard that from more than a couple people, so I believe that there's some truth to that.
2: Well, and uh, have you looked into any of the other, so I want to say, was it, Bentwaters or uh, other nuclear bases that that have come forward and people that were there. um, I'm trying to think of the base in the UK.
4: Uh, Bentwaters is right. Is it? uh, It's Bentwaters, and then it's uh, the location that's different. Um, It's a forest, Rendlesham Forest.
2: Rendlesham Forest, right? Yes. Yes. And they people have come forward and reported those same kind of of you know, uh encounters where they assume that they're scanning the the bunkers for uh nuclear missile like information on the nuclear missiles and being spotted over these silos. And I, I find it not a coincidence that you have been seeing flying saucers or at least seen a few flying saucers before you went in the military. You go in the military, you become a medic. You are stationed on a SAC base, which is a strategic air command base where they have nuclear weapons. Um, Toby is a, a learned astrologer, you know, wanting wanting to learn astronomy and going to class for it. A good physicist, great mathematician, and then you guys have this encounter, which he wanted to go to this location.
4: You know. Were you guys set up? Oh, yeah, I think so. (laughs) I I, I absolutely think so. You know, when when this was all said and done, it felt like we kept an appointment, I swear. It it felt like we were there right on time. Um, Well, it's
2: not hard to draw those conclusions. I mean, I'm not very versed on UFOs and and the whole history behind it. We had an experience where we saw what we saw that kind of led us down this path and just using, you know, point A to point B logical minds. I mean, I'm a science teacher. I'm a science guy. Yes. I can't explain what we saw. It makes no sense at all that a a black triangle floating in the air could just, that was the size of a, uh, there, there was an Ikea store there and it had to be the size of that thing easily. And it was almost like the movie predator. Like when I saw the lights kind of coming up from the street around this vehicle, they kind of disappeared into it. So you just saw like this outline and then the three, you know, the, the, the points of light that were, you know, in each corner of the, or each angle of the triangle. And the thing I would say could not have been more than a couple hundred feet above the ground. And it just kind of was moving west to east, turned on its axis to point toward the south, and then kind of moved parallel with us along the expressway. And then when we got beyond this retention wall, it was just gone. And the thing was huge. There was no way, you know, without seeing it speed off or whatever, but it was just, that was it. We had lost sight of it. And uh, I did not have a good feeling because, well, first of all, Knowing about aviation and and knowing uh, aerodynamics, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, There was no way anything this big could have just been hovering like that and moving that slow. And there were no control surfaces. There were no evident uh, evidence of exhaust ports or any kind of propulsion. It it was just ridiculous, and, and that triggered this immense fear response in me. And I usually don't get that way. And I just I could not my rational brain said, uh uh-uh, uh, this isn't normal. And so, you know, uh it, it, it was unnatural what I felt. And and Michelle, what was it that you, you had said your your famous line if our military has something like that?
0: You yeah, want, they're definitely not disclosing it.
2: Yeah. It, that, that, or it was, when did we get something like yeah, that? Yeah. <laughs> when right? I saw
0: it, I was like, well, when did our military pick up something like that?
2: Yeah. It was because I know the B 2 bomber, I know the stealth fighter, you know, the F 117, the B 2. I know what those are. The B 2 is a giant flying wing. Yeah. You could, you could, uh, mistake that, but I know what landing lights look like on an aircraft. I know the B-2 has to be going a certain speed to get airflow over the wings because it is a giant airfoil and you need that aerodynamic force. Well, and, and this was not doing that at well, all.
0: Like we said, at the time of night and exactly how low it
4: was.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
4: You know, the you, you talk about the fear. The fear that I experienced was uh, was a, a, a weird level of fear. I think it was must have been like, you know from somewhere in my lower brain stem somewhere in the reptilian brain, or yes uh kind of uh, fight or flight, the uh, danger run kind of thing um yeah that
2: that was the sense I had. I usually don't get that sense either, but that was the sense I had because I was in the state of I don't know what that is, and it's huge, and it was instant like that's not supposed to be there. And it's moving in ways that it shouldn't. And now it's rotating. It's not banking. It's rotating on an axis to point that front end of the triangle, I guess you could say, the apex of the triangle in the, in the direction that it was moving. It rotated to point that in the same direction we were going. I was not happy. And then being on the driver's side, right? Being on the driver's side, I couldn't see it. Anymore. so it was up to michelle to see it and i'm hauling just hauling ass down down 275 south and we get below this retention wall when we popped out it was gone i was like what was that what I, you know of course we didn't think about grabbing our phones or you know starting pictures or anything it was for well, me it does. was evacuate it was yes it was get out of here right yes. um So, anyways, you know, people ask
4: me all the time why we didn't why we didn't take a picture of it. Well, the long story was that my good camera we left at home, Toby had a camera in his backpack a foot away from him. And the thought of using that never crossed his mind, never crossed my mind.
2: Well, exactly. I, I yeah, I don't I don't buy that as a as an excuse as to not believing somebody's story because they didn't grab a picture of it. And besides It was 2.30 at night. We had all kinds of street lights around us, Um, weird glows. I mean, what kind of picture do you think you would have gotten on your phone if you try to take a picture of that? Oh, incredibly
0: grainy. It it
2: would have been horrible. It would have been black. Yeah, Yeah, it, it would have just been black with a couple, maybe a couple lights if you were lucky. You know, it wouldn't have shown anything. So, well, what happened now? So what happens after... You guys stay in the tent, you see it leave, and I take it now at this point, you just want to get out of there. So what happened on that after that?
4: We did the classic one, two, three, go kind of thing. And uh, I took my car keys and my wallet. Toby took his flashlight and uh, I'm sure his wallet, and we just bolted from the tent and just left everything, right? left everything there. We could care less about a $10 camp, you know, tent or, you know, Toby's Coleman cooler. Mm-hmm. None of that made any difference. We just, I wanted to get out of there with my life and that speaks to that level of fear. Yeah. And, but you know, something changed. Um, we were changed. That was 1977 was a, was a big year for me. I tend to, it was like the end of my childhood. I feel like we went down there as two late teenagers, you know, and we left there mature adults. We were, we were different people. And not only that, but I had that same, the band breaks up thing happened to me. I I'm in the car, I'm driving. And my friend, uh, we were both extremely burned. I had like the worst sunburn I'd ever had in my life under my arms, soles of my feet. I mean, everywhere in my body is burned, never peeled. You know, I never blistered, um, we had some odd spots all over us, uh, but that wasn't the big deal. The big deal was the burn and the, uh, uh, we were dehydrated terribly. And we both had flash burns to our eyes. It's the, it's the injury uh, arc welder would get if they didn't wear that smoke glass hood. Oh, right, right. So we we were hurting and uh, Toby's, I got, I'm in my big 66 Impala, right? and he's curled he was he was a smaller guy anyway he's curled up into a ball on the seat and whatever they did to me they gave him a double measure cuz he was sick and but what was strange was um, i couldn't reconcile it then and i i don't get it today but all of a sudden i wanted nothing to do with the guy and i can't i can't explain that emotion that's not i'm normally if i'm your friend i'm a loyal friend uh, you know i'm a good friend so that was that was really contrary to. Uh,
2: yeah, and and you you had that feeling, but you knew that he was like your best friend. You guys were a medic team together. Yeah. So logically, rationally, you knew that this guy was your one of your That's best exactly friends.
4: Right. I, I but, knew that on a logical level, I did. But on an but emotional emotionally, level, nope. And you know, Robert Hastings supported that. I mean, after talking to three thousand people like me. You know, that that that's exactly what the uh, military does, you know, and I'm not talking about, you know, two guys seeing a silver disc dart across the sky. That's one thing. But they have the kind of experience that we had on that intimate level. um, They bust them up, they break them up. No, you know, no. Con- we were ordered to have no contact with one another at all.
2: Yeah. So that's interesting. So in the book, you had mentioned that you you guys were dehydrated. You had some kind of burns to the cornea of your eye, like you were saying. Um, You had the burns all over your body, some kind of weird spots on your body. And you guys made it back six hours back to base. Now, did you guys go like right to the hospital at that point? Did you go home? Uh, what, What happened at that point?
4: Yeah, we lived about four blocks from each other on the base. And we were walking distance to the hospital. Okay. And uh, I dropped Toby off. Uh, I should mention this. You know, this is a long ride, six hour drive. Right, right. We had one conversation. And that was, we can't tell anybody we saw something from outer space the size of a Walmart. Um, Because I guarantee had we done that, we'd have been sent out for a psychological evaluation and discharged from the military. No doubt in my mind that would have happened. Right. And that, I didn't want that, you know, I, I was there for a purpose for the GI Bill to go to school. That was, that was the purpose. It was an end to a mean, means to an end. And Toby agreed with me. So we had then the ethical problem. of then, Well, what do we, how do we explain this? And I said, right. well, I, I think here's what we do. We tell them the truth. We tell them that we went to bed, we went to bed early and we weren't feeling well. And we woke up sick as dogs and we felt so bad that we left and came home and didn't care about a $10 tent. We just wanted to get home. Right. And uh, so that you was just leave story. out the
2: just leave out the part about the giant triangle that's, you know, floating above you with the little people running around when you came to.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, and, I mean, and we, were, we were members of the hospital squadron. So these people were all our friends. We knew we knew right. everyone. They knew us. And I'll say this medical people do take care of their own. We were treated very, very well. Yeah. But we were we were broken up and isolated from one another from from the start
2: yeah and one thing that um people may not be aware of but when you are in the military and you are on a nuclear base where where there's very sensitive weapons and things like that um obviously you're not allowed to take pictures anywhere on the base or anything like that can you uh kind of expand on that a little bit about some of the security protocols and things like that you guys, uh, were instructed
4: with. Yeah. You mean from when we landed on the base and got there? Yeah. 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 You know, we were told that, uh, they, they moved missiles around. They had a special, uh, uh, van like thing that they, uh, used to move the missiles and, uh, you know, guys in Jeeps in front and then back in a helicopter over the top of them. And they would move these missiles around and warheads around and, uh, you know, we knew where the bunkers were, where the nukes were kept. And, uh, you know, from uh, a block from my house, I had a clear sight of the flight line with the KC-135s lined up in back sure. and the B-52s yep. in front. And um, every so often there'd they'd scramble them because at, at this time in 1977, we had a squadron of B-52s in the air 24-7. Yep. And when the air rotation came, these guys would take off en masse. And Wyman Air Force Base is unique in that it had, at the time, I don't know if it does still now, but the longest flight line of any military installation in the United States. Because when the base was built uh, in the 40s, it was originally built as a glider base to train glider pilots. So it had a a longer longer airstrip. And uh, yeah, So, so I mean there were, there were security police people around. And I mean, it was just understood. It was an understood thing that you don't. Right. Got. Well, these are, I guess what I'm,
2: my point is, is that, you know, these are very sensitive bases, uh, uh, weaponry and and information that is on these bases with people living and, and dealing with the nuclear weapons and things like that. If you came back from a camping trip in the condition that both of you guys were in, And started talking about a giant flying triangle with little people. Chances are that you would not be telling us about this right now because you'd probably be in Leavenworth or even worse. um, A a court martial or locked in a psychiatric ward or charged with treason. Um, Where are your cameras, you know, kind of thing. My life
4: would have taken an entirely different trajectory that's yeah true.
2: yeah so these are high security uh high risk areas when when you're dealing with those kind of things so um yeah so anyways uh so you get to the hospital at this point and what happens at now at this point
4: well first uh they they we went to two different exam rooms our both both of our wives drove us to the hospital independently of one another and uh we saw toby's car in the parking lot so we knew we they were there and uh, i uh i was in a wheelchair that took me into the uh, exam room and i had a couple of doctors uh and i knew them and uh but one guy asked me he says Terry, what did you do? Did you take off all your clothes? They put you on a spit or something and rotate you? How did you get this burn? And I said, doc, I don't have a clue, uh, which was the truth. And um, after, toward the end of this medical exam, um, there were four people came into the room. One of them being the base commander, the hospital commander, and two guys in civilian clothes I didn't recognize, and the hospital commander said, Sergeant Lovelace should have had no contact with Sergeant Tobias in any way, shape or form. You're not to speak to him verbally, talk, talk to him on the phone, give him any written notes. You're not to give him anything. He's not to give you anything. If you meet him at the base exchange, you turn around and walk in the opposite direction and on and on and on and on. You know, yeah. typical what you'd hear of a no contact uh, order from a court, you know, a, you know, in a domestic violence case or something. Uh, and he finished with, and that's an order, Sergeant. And if you disobey my order, there will be consequences.
2: Well, that's also something they do in in uh, criminal interrogations as well. You, you don't. Is that not correct? You would split the parties and ask them questions and see who's telling the lie, who you can get to flip on the other person, uh, who's really going to tell the story and then kind of put them together and figure that somewhere in the middle must be the the truth. Of what they're they're seeing right i mean for a few so years uh,
4: in american samoa i was a uh, u.s territory of american samoa i was uh the da da um, right and i prosecuted people so i worked with uh the police and i you know in retrospect going back then I mean, at 22 i had no idea i had no exactly life experience yeah. no education but uh, a lot of what uh, the osi did and said and acted out was was drama on their end uh, i did theater i should say yeah
2: Yeah. Yeah. Playing to your inexperience of knowledge of the law, threatening you with court martial and, you know, things can get really bad for you. But I just wonder if, if when they first initially saw you guys come in with the burns you had on your bodies, if they instantly thought you guys were somewhere, maybe not on a camping trip, I'm playing devil's advocate here, but Around the nuclear weapons in some way and got radiation burns, or were doing something you weren't supposed to do. And that's why they separated you and gave you this kind of treatment. Because to me, it doesn't make sense that you would go right into like almost like a criminal investigation unless there's something that they saw that said these guys were somewhere on this base, even though they say they went camping and stuff but they could be lying. They could be agents. It's 1977 mm-hmm. and, and Soviets had their hands in all kinds of things and espionage and learning information and stuff that that was their knee jerk response. But then it gets a lot stranger after that. So it
4: got strange for me. I was hospitalized for two nights and three days. And on the evening of the second night, uh, when my night nurse came in, uh, who I knew well, was going to give me an injection for pain and sleep, um, and they kept the lights turned off in the room because of these burns to my eyes. And uh, these two guys in blue business suits followed her in. And the one guy in charge uh, was a major. And he says, uh, if that's going to sedate Sergeant Lovelace, it's going to have to wait because we have to ask him questions. Uh, And they pulled out badges, and they were from the OSI. And uh, they sat down, they interrogated me. He read me my rights under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which scared me to death. Uh, And I'm thinking, well, you know, if I don't cooperate fully, I'm going to look like I'm hiding something and I didn't do anything wrong. Um, You know, and you brought up a point, where did we go? Well, you know, there's a little sticker on my car and I left through the gate. So I think they knew that I left through the gate on Uh, one day and came back on another Uh, okay because i'm sure there were probably cameras there um i think they knew where we went and i think they know what we saw and i think that because um this this agent the special agent from the osi scared me to death with intimidation like i said theater in retrospect um and then um he had me, I signed a lot of forms and NDA and a bunch of stuff. And uh, um, after this long exchange of intimidation, uh, the nurse came back in and says, doctor wants him to have this now. And the major says, oh, it's fine. We're done. We're done. We're just taking off. So I get my injection and the captain leaves. There was a captain along with him who didn't say a word hardly. And then there was just major and I in this room. And the major got down next to my ear And he had this Louisiana accent like Calvin Parker has. And he says, Son, I know and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something while you were out there. And I think you know what I mean. And I didn't answer the guy because I didn't know how to answer the guy. And he says, Oh, yeah, I think you know what I mean. All I want to know is how many pictures of it did you take? And you know, without thinking, I blurted out, Sir, I never took a single picture. And he just smiled you know, because he had an admission. Yep. He knew that I knew, I knew that he knew. And, you know, that's all that needed to be said. And uh, he he said, you know, I need your your camera and your film. And I said, sorry, I never took a picture, you know, and uh, never, never, they, they searched my house, they searched my car. Um, you know, there's nothing on my camera, it's empty, you know, it's a camera bag with a camera with lenses in it. And,
2: and they're never, terrifying or they're traumatizing and terrifying your wife during this time as well. They right? did, you know, going they had through my your consent. house.
4: Yeah. I mean, they were, they were courteous. They didn't tear up the house, but they thoroughly searched through everything that we own, you know? And what was curious was, you know, I, I had a camera I couldn't use much, um, but I had a new camera and had a new telephoto lens. So at night I'd go out in the backyard and set up my camera on a tripod and if we had a really nice, cool looking full moon, I'd take pictures of the full moon and then take them in on my larger and blow them up. And they made interesting prints. I didn't see any anomalies or UFOs or anything on it. It was just a picture right. of the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and they took those, they took mm. those, they took my wife's little 35 millimeter camera. Uh, we got the camera back. They kept the film yeah. I mean, birthday party pictures, you know, nothing. nothing. Right. Um, but no, somehow they knew. I don't know how they knew, but they knew.
1: Hmm. So
4: um
2: one part of the book after this happens, you have an encounter with uh Brad. Let's call him Brad. Mm-hmm. That was extremely terrifying to listen to that because I can't even explain unless people hear this or read it in the book, which I highly recommend everybody read this book. um, It's, it's like something out of a Kubrick film. You can call me Brad and I'm going to call my name. That is my name. Right. It was like creepy. Is he, is he right? Is he going to get some tape out and tape your eyelids open so you can't, you know, and start the brainwashing tree. I mean, it was bizarre.
4: It was bizarre. It was bizarre. And, you know, and he sat down and shook my hand. He didn't act like a military officer. He carried himself like a priest or something. And uh, he knew I was from St. Louis. So he starts rattling off some landmarks and, uh, you know, Ragazzi's and the Bush Stadium and all this stuff. And okay. uh, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I realized, hey, wait a minute. You're feeling comfortable with this guy.
2: Now this, you went, you went back after you were released out of the hospital. Let me see if I've got the, the timeline, right. You're released out of the hospital. And then you were like, I'll take a polygraph to prove, right. I'll, I'll prove my innocent, or at least I'll prove to you that I'm telling the truth. Um, Because the OSI guys ended up telling you, or, or was it the, the, base commander or it the was the hospital? osi
4: guy on the phone the,
2: okay i told you that you were on federal land and this was a possible uranium deposit you guys stumbled upon
4: oh no that was the doctor that was the old oh, the doctor colonel the, the okay. yeah there was this old guy i mean i don't know how he was on active duty i mean he, um but this this doctor who carried himself like he was 70 and, and half now, but you know he had birds on his shoulder so he was in charge and he came into my room and sat on the bed and was very kind, very cordial and said, well, you know, we figured this all out for you. The, um, you guys had laid on those rocks and those, are, those, those gave you some burns, but that's, that's natural, it's from radiation and, and you'll be fine from it. Uh, and then he says, and now, I, th- I thought this was interesting. Now this, this, you'll probably have some funny dreams after this. Uh, he was <laughs> definitely right about that. Right. He says, but you know what? If you don't talk about them or share them with anybody, they'll just go away. And he says, besides, this is nobody's business and you know, you shouldn't talk about it. And I said, yeah, you know, I, I, doc. Yeah, I do. I understand. Yes, sir. You know, it was a bad experience. I got no reason to tell anybody anything. And he said, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, hmm. But he made it sound like there was a rational explanation for everything that happened to us. Um, you know, and medically I knew different, uh, I don't know what happened to us, but I know we weren't laying on a plutonium rock. Right, right. you uh, um, deposit, yeah. But so
2: you you decide you want to do a polygraph and you're going to meet with the OSI guys again. And and you they bring in this character um, who goes by Brad. Now, it, it, everything you, you explain in the book about this guy and the methods that they were going to use, some type of a, uh, hypnosis, and uh, a drug induced state to me, in 1977, that sounds of eerily
4: of CIA. You know, uh, I put a little email address in the back of devil's den in the epilogue. And I said, if you've had an experience, I'm not a doctor or a therapist, but write to me, and I'll write you back. And, uh, you know, if you want to discuss something with somebody i will you can do it with me in absolute anonymity. And I thought, man, I bet I get 100 emails. Well, when I wrote the second book, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, I'd received over 1,400. Wow. I have 1,700 now. And um, I've talked to a lot of people who told me that they had the same kind of visit. And sodium amytal I didn't know what the drug was. They, they told me that sodium amytal was the drug that, that they used on me.
1: The,
4: used used it by the gallons in uh, nineteen seventy. 1960s and wow uh, wow
2: okay um but now i know that you and toby had this falling out you were told to stay away he ends up getting uh orders to go to japan that's right correct yeah so they're they're definitely breaking the families apart and and moving him and his family far from you. So you guys are separated. And I know you didn't have much contact with them, except to basically, you know, say goodbye. I want to um, explain
4: that. I, I do. Yeah. I Cause I, you know, emotionally, I, on, the, on my logical side, I knew that I'd worked for three years with this guy. Our wives were friends. We were friends. Uh, you know, I felt like I owed him a pat on the back, shake his hand, good luck in, to- in, uh, in Japan and, uh, it's been, it's been a privilege to work with you. Uh, mm-hmm. And I felt like I really had to do that. I mean, I felt a real strong compulsion to do that. And I felt like if I could do that, I could gain some measure of peace with this. Right. And, uh, closure, whatever you want to call it. And so I, we were coming back from a grocery store and I told my wife, uh, four blocks west at swing by Toby's. I want to run in and just tell him goodbye. And she's like, Terry, don't mess with these OSI people. Uh, She was against it, but you know, she relented and pulled over. And I hopped out of the car and I ran up to the door, same door. I'd walked through a hundred times before. It's never locked. I know that I turned a knob and I knocked three times on the door. Like I always did. And I said, Hey guys, it's me. And I stepped inside the house Um, and his wife walked by and they were packing And she gave me a very hard look. And she said, you're not supposed to be here. Mm. And I said, I know. I'm not here to confront anybody. I just want to say goodbye to my friends. And uh, she kept walking. And Toby heard our exchange and came from around the corner from the bedroom and walked up the hallway. And when I saw him, it wasn't like seeing my friend. I don't know how to explain it, but I felt stunned. I just felt weird. I just felt... uh, nervous, anxious. Uh, and I, you know, I went in there with the intent to, to hug the guy and say, you know, great working with you. I thought that that would be appropriate. Um, but I didn't do that. Um, hmm. And he walked up to me and he, well, he looked like a train wreck. I mean, he was shorter than I was. Uh, but he was always meticulous about his appearance. And I mean, he, he was the guy that always had the, you know, pressed uniform and the shoes shine right. and a haircut within regs. And, you know, I was the slob of the two, but, uh, but he was always, uh, I mean, even when, even when we played volleyball or something, he looked, managed to look good somehow. You know, I don't know. He was right. very particular about his appearance. And um, he came around, his hair was all wonky. He had a growth of beard and um, dirty clothes. And I mean, I cut him some slack because he is moving. But he walks up to me, and I I stuck out my hand at the same time he stuck out his hand, and we missed each other, and we finally managed to do this inelegant kind of handshake. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, I hear you're going to Japan. I just want to wish you well, and it's been good working with you. And he's looking up at me, and I can smell liquor on his breath. Now, Toby wasn't a drinker at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, he might drink a beer at a barbecue, but if he had a second can, half of it would go the chicken on the grill or something. He, sure. he was not a drinker and uh, it smelled like hard liquor. Um, it wasn't beer and his eyes were bloodshot and he looked up at me and he had tears in his eyes. I mean, they didn't run down his cheek, but his eyes teared up and he just said to me, it happened, didn't it, Terry? And I said, yes, my brother, it happened. You're not losing your mind. And then he said, yeah, but why us? And I'll tell you, that just, that just struck me like somebody smacked my face. And I, yep. I looked down, I broke, broke from his gaze. I looked down at my shoes. I said, man, I don't have a clue. And I ran out of the house. And, uh, I, you know, I left there thinking I'd have some type of, of um, peace, you know, closure. But no, it was nothing mm. but anxiety.
2: Now, was that the last contact then you had with Toby at that
4: point? It was. It and, was. And
2: then eventually he ended up passing away.
4: He did. He passed away in September of 2007. So we had all of those years that we could have been together, you know. Yeah. As you know, two old guys sit around a barbecue and uh, have a beer and talk about what, you know, that day at Devil's Den. That never got to happen. Now.
2: One of the questions I had for you was, did you ever find out, did Toby ever disclose or find out himself that uh, he might have had the same type of, like, leg implants that that you did?
4: I didn't discover mine until 2012, and he was dead for five years by that time. I'd like to know, did he have the same kind of childhood experiences that I had? And that, too, right? You know, if you read that poem in the beginning of Incident at Devil's Den, there's a poem that I wrote, uh, 1973, uh, you know, high school stuff. Right. Um, but that poem spells out very clearly my experience with these non human entities that came to visit me as a child. And I'd wow. like to know if they visited him too. I bet they did.
2: That, that would be. <clears throat> You know, you hear of some people that have these experiences, at least I I have heard about this, where people will become, a, will be abducted and come back and and be different, like their family relationships fall apart or their marriages fall apart and things like that. But also some people will come away. I don't want to say gifts because that sounds all sci-fi-ish, but like an awakened interest in something that they were never interested in. So for for instance, where my mind is going is something like this happened to Toby as a child, or he had those same kind of experiences, which gave him the interest and he worked and maybe the ability to work toward being, as a city boy, somebody who is interested from Flint, Michigan, of being a astronomer and an awesome physicist and mathematician. And and, and you hear about some of these people that return like that. Um, I wish I could remember some examples other than that one. I've got
4: a hundred. I've got a hundred. From people that have written to me, I've got 100. I've got uh, one or two that stand out. uh, And the one that stands out is in the back of the second book, The Reckoning. Okay. And this woman is a nurse anesthetist, um, 67 years old. And she told me about when she was nine years old, she and her seven-year-old sister went on an annual summer vacation trip with their parents to their maternal grandparents' farm in Oklahoma somewhere. Uh, and uh, they, they'd spend a week or two with, with the grandparents, and they'd done that every year that they could remember. And um, uh, I'll make this short. There's a, it was a big old farmhouse with a, with a high, maybe a 12-foot high berm of dirt, just wide enough for a tractor to cut across, separating the front yard from the backyard. The front yard was cut grass and flowers and trees. The backyard was a working farm, with a farm pond, you know, eight to 12 feet deep. And they didn't want the girls to ever cross over the berm. This was the first year they were allowed to play outside without direct adult supervision because they knew they could be trusted not to go over the berm. Okay. She said that they heard, quote, calliope music. And if anybody doesn't know what a calliope is, circuses used to have the steam operated yep. thing with pipe organ type affair. Uh, distinctive sound, distinctive music. And, uh, very creepy too. Very creepy. And, and, and the younger girl, Molly says it's a circus. Um, but of course the music's coming from the other side of the, of the berm. And, um, Julia says, we can't cross the berm, you know, the rules and Molly who may may have made a good lawyer says, yeah, but we can't, nothing says we can't stand on top of the berm and just (laughs) look over. And, um, so they did. And she claims that they saw a carousel, uh, and the horses looked like they were alive and it was three times bigger than any carousel they'd ever seen in their life. And it was wrapped with Christmas lights all around and it was three or four feet off the ground because they could see a distinct shadow underneath it. So I'm sure that was a screen memory of some kind. Um, Long story short, they disappeared. They were gone for four hours. Had a massive search. They were dragging the pond, afraid that the girls would drown. The girls suddenly reappear, sitting dry, dry as a bone, laying back, sound asleep, holding hands on the side of the sperm. Just boom, they're back, and no memory of anything that happened no memory uh, of the last thing they remembered. I ended up meeting this woman uh, in person and and they no memory of it. Um, She said the last thing she remembers was uh, climbing to take a look over the hill. And she remembers seeing this giant, giant crazy circus ride and um, just quote being mesmerized by it. Mm. That's the last thing she said. But, But the point of the story is, is that when they left there, they left us two different little girls. While they had been really close, really tight as sisters, now there was something between them. And Julia, who had struggled in school with math and science, uh, is suddenly a math wizard. She goes back and starts fractions and it's like, bingo, no problem. So goes from being a solid C student to an honor student and you know, taking upper level classes. Molly takes a downward trajectory and is sullen and unapproachable and complaining and genuinely not happy with life and just went from being a happy girl to an unhappy little girl. Hmm. And I asked her, well, when you guys were adults, did you talk about what happened on the farm? And uh, that's when she told me that Molly had passed away uh, five years earlier yeah, I, freak, I don't know what date it would be five years earlier from when we talked and, uh, from, from breast cancer. And she took uh family medical leave act time to be with her while she was in hospice toward the end.
1: Mm.
4: And, uh, one day she uh, mustered up the courage to say, you want to talk about what happened at grandpa's that day? And she turned her face to the wall and said, no. Mm. Uh, and died shortly thereafter, wow, would not talk about it, but Julia absolutely left with a gift. Um, you know she got the benefit, Molly got the burden, so go figure yeah uh, man that's
2: uh, yeah, that's quite the story, and you said you've got at least a hundred of story stories yeah, like that, I do. wow, yeah, well, I know it's getting on in time here, and it's getting late um. Let's see. Uh, there's a couple of questions I wanted to ask you. Um, that was the implant one and any idea what the implants in your leg might've been for
1: like,
4: any I, I, I don't, yeah. I mean, I can guess all day long or make assumptions, but I really, I don't have a clue. Okay. All
2: right. Um, and one of the, Last things I wanted to ask you is, since you've written the book now and you pub- you kept this quiet for fear of backlash and professional uh, backlash and things like that until 2018 when you published the book, um, Incident at Devil's Den, since then, have you had any further issues or contact with uh, anybody from OSI coming to visit you or any other kind of three letter agencies or anything like
4: that with the information I can that tell you about out there? From, from the day I published the book within three weeks, I felt like I'd poked a bear. I mean, really? Uh, yeah, really. Um, I had, um, well, first of all, in April, I got a call and I pick up the phone. I, I saw the call was from Los Angeles. I got friends in LA and I thought that's when one of my friends pick up this phone and it says, uh, is this Terry? I said, yeah, this is Terry. Who's this? And he says, Terry, this is Tom DeLonge. And I had no idea, you know, blink One Eighty Two. I didn't know who Tom DeLonge was. Oh, right. So um, I said, well, hi, Bigelow, Tom.
2: he was working with Bigelow or something like that. Is that correct? He, with NIDS? He,
4: uh, TTSA to the stars Academy. Okay. Uh, and, uh, he worked with uh, Chris Mellon recently on the news, Hal put off, um, couple other guys I will mention Um, and then of course Lou Elizondo right and Lou was in on the call and um, we talked about my book for a while and he said well I think Lou wants to come visit you and he's just going to do a quote turn and burn and uh, maybe spend a day there and I said that'd be fine he's more than welcome so one thing led to another and that never happened until um, late late of 20, late 2018 i started having these helicopters buzz my house and i mean i know it sounds cliche but i got 168 photographs of unmarked helicopters matter of fact in again it's the month of march 2019 there was an article in the dallas morning news i don't remember the day i got a copy of the paper somewhere um back like in like the not the news section but like a. Uh, and the question was in bold headlines: Why are there so many military helicopters over Dallas? And in, in the first paragraph, it says military helicopters reported in Dallas and Garland. Garland was the community where I lived in, and I I, I read it to my wife, and and she says, Yeah, I know where they're at. They're over our house, you know. <laughs> and I mean, wow. seriously, it was kind of funny at first. I mean, it was yeah. kind of like, Oh, they rerouted the traffic copter or something. But um, no, it got to be. Um, untenable. We sold the house that I really didn't want to sell. We sold it and we moved. Yeah. Uh, Lou Elizondo flew down and spent two days with me. Um, now was
2: this when he was still director of a tip?
4: Oh no. He, he was, an he, had employee, left. he was a civilian working for to the stars okay. Academy. Okay. And uh, brought a cameraman down who wanted to film my story and we're sitting in my living room and, He's, his cameraman is filming away, and his cameraman says, hmm, got a bad battery. Battery drops from 90% to zero. And he says, I got more out in the car. So he's annoyed. He runs out to the car and grabs a couple batteries, comes back in, pops one in. We start filming again uh, with 100% battery. Five minutes later, it drops to zero. That's the kind of stuff that happens. That's the kind of stuff we've experienced. Wow. Um, strange cars being followed by people um, just a lot of really weird, weird things. Um, I could talk, for, it would take an hour to tell you all the stories, but yeah. you know, my, my, my television, or television set uh, since 2018, since I published the book television set in the living room, turned itself on at 2.00 AM poltergeist kind of stuff. Right. You know, my wife and now which, whichever one of us is more awake, we'll go just turn it off and say aloud, Hey, knock it off. And we go back to bed. It's, it's not a big deal anymore. It's a nuisance, but it's yeah. not scary anymore. Right. Right. Um,
2: okay. Uh, what are your thoughts with what is being? Uh, every time we do a podcast, it seems like we've got news of UFO this, UFO that, in, in CNN, local Fox News. What are your thoughts on all of this uh, going on and this report that's supposed to be out in June? What are you taking all that in? What do you think?
4: I'll tell you what I can intuit and uh, my opinion. Okay. And that is that I, I know how the military works and a, um, you know, a naval commander doesn't get on tel- national television and uh, tell a story like like uh, Commander Fraver told about the tic-tacs harassing his F-18, that just doesn't happen. Right. You know, uh, I had a uh, gentleman who was aboard the uh, Princeton contact me. I had another gentleman who was aboard the Roosevelt contact me because they read my books. and I guess they identified with me being military. I would, right. And, um, yeah, you know, something's going on. If I could say th- th- these people that are coming forth and are telling these stories that are affiliated with the military – That permission to do that comes from the highest level. That comes from the executive level of government. Not the legislative, not the judicial. That comes from the executive branch, from the president of the United States. And everything happens for a reason. There's timing behind all this. You know, they know, and they could have told us back in December, they could have told us 10 years ago, but they didn't. But they think June is is the right time to tell us. And my guess is, from my limited knowledge of working as a civil servant, is they know and they know that something's going to happen and they they feel that it's in the best interest of our national security to tell everybody up front guys you know we may have been wrong about this stuff um we don't know what they are but you know uh to prepare us because something's coming yeah everybody that i know that's in this field um feels it i feel it um something's coming And uh, there was a doctor uh, from Israel, Haim Ashed, who uh, was quoted in the Jerusalem Post on December 8th of 2020, saying that the United States and Israel have been in a treaty with the Galactic Federation for many years. And that President Donald Trump had plans to make full disclosure to the United States people and that quote, Dr. Sh- Dr. Shedd's words were, E.T. dissuaded him from making that disclosure. Hmm. And he said, now this is curious words. He said, you know, disclosure shouldn't be made because um, and disclosure shouldn't be made until they understand the nature of space and spaceships. Now, I don't know if they means government or they means the public or they means both uh, but understands the nature of space and spaceships. Those six words, just, I I run them over in my head and I'm thinking, what do they mean? And I think that, uh, what we're going to find out is this stuff isn't at all what we, what we think it is. Uh, Right. I think they're going to tell us that, uh, you know, there's a layer above uh, Newtonian physics, you know, that we call quantum physics and there's another layer above that we don't know about. And, uh, I know this sounds crazy, but I really feel that uh, the universe is a living entity in itself. It's it's an organism. And I think there, you know, to use the word from the 80s, the paradigm's going to change. Yeah. Um,
2: I have no idea what what to make out of it and in, in what might be coming. I just, I find it extremely strange. And then, you know, uh, President Trump put in the the stimulus bill that, Hey, I will sign this as long as you present a report in June after I'm not president anymore about what we know about UFOs. And Oh, by the way, while I'm as president, let's create this thing called space force. Now, you know what, why, why? I mean, I, my, my scientific mind wants to jump to, okay maybe it has to do with asteroid impacts or you know these kind of things but now you flip on the news any almost any day and now you have 2018 released videos from certain destroyers being followed perfectly harassed. matched right or harassed that they have filmed You know, seven, uh, a couple thousand feet, whatever, above the destroyers. Now, we're talking about an American U.S. Navy destroyer that if somebody flying a plane tried to get close to them without identification or whatever, would have been blown out of the sky 80 miles from the ship. Guarantee you. Absolutely. I mean, but here Here, they show
4: these triangular craft. Pyramids. Pyramids. Pyramids, right? Three dimensional pyramid. You know, there's a clue. There's a clue here, Mm -hmm. and that is when Senator Harry Reid uh, started the program that Lou Elizondo ran.
1: Yep, that That ATIP program, Advanced
4: Aerial Threat. That word threat. Yep. In military parlance, in the military, the word threat has a different meaning than you and I would use it as civilians. When they say threat, they mean threat to national security. Well, it's just, just to draw a parallel to that, it's just like when somebody says
2: uh, that they have a theory. And in science, when you're classically trained in science, a theory is not an idea. Most people say, oh, I have a theory about this. Well, you have a hypothesis, hypothesis, right? You have an idea, but a theory is backed up by evidence, like the theory of evolution. We've got the fossil record that shows us about the evolution of Species. now it doesn't explain how the species started where life came from it just shows a progression of how life has changed based on environment right so yeah threat (laughs) when navy or the military
4: says threat that that's a little bit different it is threat to national security so we're in for we're in for a wild ride i I think something is, is is very big and something is coming well, I think it was uh, Lou Elizondo or it was
2: uh, uh, Jeremy Corbin, who it might have been both of them stating in one of the interviews that I've seen. There's been so much information just coming in, it's hard to keep track anymore. But the, you know, they said that these these vehicles are operating within our airspace with impunity. Within they just the- do the- what they just. Now they got them going into the ocean and, you know, it was everybody at, at one point were, were laughing about the, uh, you know, the history channels shows about USOs under what, you know, what unidentified submerged objects. Now they have them
4: on video. Yeah. I got, I got emails from guys that served on Navy ships that talked about this, you know, uh, uh, cigar shaped metallic, uh, Craft the size of a carrier, or pardon me, the destroyer that they were on, uh, come out of the water without breaking a wave. Now, how do, how does that work?
2: Yeah, and I think uh, the word that they used was now transmedium. They can go from space to atmosphere to water operations without a hitch. And yeah. the uh, interview I saw with somebody from the Washington Examiner says that in this report, be expecting to see. Sonar data from submarines, nuclear submarines that have sonar data of these unidentified submerged objects doing hundreds of knots miles per hour. Yeah. Underwater.
1: Yeah.
4: Yeah. Underwater. I I, I got an email from from a guy who who told me that, uh, said he was aboard a uh, boomer, uh, you know, a nuclear. Yeah. Uh, big, big uh, submarine with very sophisticated radar that can identify a ship. I mean, they can, yeah. they can run the signature of the, uh, from the propellers in the water and, and track that too. Oh, well, that's L47 vessel, this number, and I right. know exactly which ship it is.
2: Right. So, yeah, I agree. We're, we're in for a wild ride. And, and I think over the years, it's, uh, it's been building up to this point And I think now it's gotten to the point that, You know, the government, you know, will probably say, look, everybody, we we just didn't want to panic you. But now at this juncture in our existence, here's where we're at. You know, uh, I understand the whole national security thing back in the 70s and 80s. And when I was in the military in the 80s and 90s, it was, you know, the the Russian bear. You know, it was always, you know. You got to protect because that that's what's going on. But they would not admit that there were some kind of holes in our defensive systems that allowed these vehicles, whatever they were, to operate land, scan nuclear missiles or whatever the case may be. They were not going to admit that at all for national Mm. security reasons. Hmm. Yeah.
4: Yeah. But my guess is they're going to make a disclosure because they know it's going to be evident and they want to beat them to the punch. And Yeah
2: yeah i agree okay well in closing um any uh closing remarks you want to leave us with and please tell us about uh you have a website out there you have started a podcast on youtube so why don't you give us some information on that and what's really awesome is how you got us in contact with what you're doing this summer uh contact in the desert so
4: before we go yeah contact in the desert is the world's largest UFO conference I, it's been a privilege of mine since 2018 to attend every year I can tell you that everybody everybody that's anybody in this UFO culture and there's a very active very lively UFO community uh, that I had no idea existed until I got into this in 2018 yeah. uh, with some amazing people uh, you know Linda Moulton howe I mean I could I could I could name the list but you know, if you're listening to my voice, chances are, you know, them too. Uh, They're going to be there too. Uh, I'm going to be there. Uh, I have, I have a presentation to make uh, and I'm going to focus on my second book. So this won't be mostly, it won't mostly be a rehash of what you just heard. Right. Um, But it's uh, June 25th through 28th. It's a virtual conference, um, but it's set up in a really cool way uh, where you can attend virtually. You have a little avatar and you can go to meeting rooms, uh, I'm gonna give a presentation. I'm also gonna do a workshop. Um, I'm doing a workshop for um, experiencers based on the data that I collected from these 1700 emails that I've got from people. And what I did was I put them out on an Excel spreadsheet looking for commonalities and I found some. And uh, so if you, know, if you think you've had an experience or if you're just curious, uh, please come to my presentation, my, my workshop. Um, Come anyway, it's going to be awesome. My books are Incident at Devil's Den uh, for sale on Amazon, or I think you can pick it up on the website.
2: Fantastic Um, book. I mean, terrifying and well written. And if you get a chance to get the audible version and listen to Terry read the book so you can get that inflection in the voice and things like that, that's how I love to read and it changes, it changes the story. Um, so just for people's, you know, I, I'm not a big book reader. I'm a listener and, uh, it, it was just fantastic. I can't, uh, give enough praise to that book. Cause I'm definitely picking up the second one, which you're going to talk about now.
4: <laughs> I, I am. I am. I'm happy to <laughs> say both books hit number one bestseller on Amazon. Um, now the second book is devil's den, the reckoning. I put that out December 20th of 2020. 20- Oh, pardon me. Of 2021, 2020, 2020, I lost a year because of COVID, you know?
2: <laughs> right. Um, Everybody has. Yeah.
4: So, uh, the book is out. The Kindle is out. I'm working on an audio book, uh, halfway done with it. Uh, awesome. so I hope to before, before June 25th, I hope to have it up and on Amazon available for sale. So check Amazon and look for it. Uh, and I appreciate I mean, the opportunity to be, uh, your guest tonight. Thanks to you and Michelle, and it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, we are very happy to have you.
0: Yeah, we appreciate you making time for us.
2: Yes, um, and also um, Terry does have his own podcast now on YouTube. Just uh, I think you call it
4: Devil's Den Podcast, correct? I do. We've we yep. filmed about seven segments. Um, okay. Uh, I'm going to be making a change uh, to a radio station. Oh, OK. That I that I really shouldn't announce now because we're working out the details. But OK, right. right. I'm going to have a weekly radio show um, soon. Awesome. And, uh, that so is that great be news. That instead of the podcast. But, okay. um, same idea. I'm going to have guests and cool stuff. And if it's esoteric, it's there, you know.
2: Right. Right. Um, people people love listening to the stories. I mean, I grew up listening, you know, with my mom. And you know, listening to AM radio and all the different shows as a as a small child, and just love listening to people talk and tell their stories. Yes. And uh, podcasting to me is is AM radio in the future. You know, it, it is. It, and you can have these long form conversations. Like, I'm not sure how long we've been talking here. Probably two hours. Yeah, um, it gotta be at least and you know, it feels like it's been 10 minutes. Always, and, every time. It's just amazing. And then once again, your uh, your website is just
4: terrylovelace.com. Right? Yes. I don't have my second book. It's ill-maintained. I'm, I'm lazy. I don't have the second book up on there. Yeah. Yeah. But if you go on that website,
2: you can see the, the picture that Terry drew of the craft. It's on his website if you click on the about me page you can see a pretty extensive bio it's more extensive than what michelle and i uh said at the beginning of this podcast and there's also two um x-rays that you guys can all look at and see about the objects that were found in his leg um it's it's fascinating So anything else, Terry, that you want to
4: leave us with? You know, let's all see what happens in June.
2: Exactly. Maybe you guys
4: will have to have me back and we'll talk about it.
2: Oh, I'll tell you what. As soon as you get that, uh, the reckoning recorded and I listen to it, I've got to bring you back. We've got to have you come back on and to tell us about this radio show. Sounds very, very interesting.
4: I would love to have the the opportunity to tell. Absolutely. Tell your awesome listening audience uh, <laughs> yeah, and share that with them too.
2: Well, again, uh, we just want to say thank you for coming on and helping our little podcast that due to our experience, we've been brought into this community, this, I, I don't even know how to explain it, but it has been a wild ride. I mean, it is all I can say.
4: Yeah. We're members of the community.
2: Yeah. We're in a club. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, depending on how you view that club, you may not want to be in the club. I I don't know. So, all right. Well, thank you very much, Terry. And uh, we look forward to having you back on. It was a privilege and a pleasure to speak with you. So just want to say again, thank you very much.
4: Great. I'll talk to you guys soon.
0: Good night, Michelle. Good night.
1: Bye Have yourself. a great night.
2: You too. And we will take, be in touch. Take care of me. Thank you. Wow, Michelle.
0: That was quite the recollection.
2: I just am at a loss for words with that interview.
0: Well, and I think the digging into most recent events in the Devil's Den area has what just has me mind blown.
2: Yeah, that really kind of struck a chord with you a little bit with the uh, the mother that had died in 2018 and then the part of the one young man's skull that was found, and that was it. it it's just uh, mind-boggling. It's like, what's next? Yeah, I don't want to ask that. <laughs> I, I'm afraid to know what's next. Well, I guess we'll find out in June. So, all right, everybody, uh, we really hope that you enjoyed that interview with Mr. Terry Lovelace. Please check out his books, Incident at Devil's Den and then Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Incident at Devil's Den is a fantastic yet terrifying account of what Terry and his friend Toby went through in 1977. And to keep it secret all these years to finally release the book in 2018. March of 2018, I might add, um, you can find Terry's website at terrylovelace.com. You can also find his podcast on YouTube. It is under devil's den podcast. Just search for that on YouTube and you will find his video feed and you can subscribe to that. Um, very awesome news that he has a radio show that's going to be starting, a weekly radio show, which is amazing. Very glad to have him tell us about that. So there's some uh, breaking news, I guess.
0: And don't forget to check Terry Lovelace out at Contact in the Desert, yes. along with the the many other guest speakers.
2: So I guess with that, I don't think anything else be said or needs to be said at this point nope
0: until next time everyone keep your eyes to the sky you have been listening to the michigan ufo sightings and paranormal encounters podcast You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO sightings and paranormal encounters. So until next time.